This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. For you to make interesting radio. If this hour is boring, I'm only partially responsible because you're driving the bus for the next hour. I am prepared to answer your questions on any subject at 800-848-9222-800-848-9222 because as we do every week around this time, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. All right. Um, for the next hour, I am prepared to try and tackle your question on anything that you're genuinely curious about. Whoever comes up with the most interesting, the most creative, the best question, not determined by me, but as judged by our three staff members here, uh, Kenneth, Matt Blaze, and Elias, we are going to give you a prize, a complimentary prize from the other side of Midnight Store. Questions are just that. Questions. Questions are words or phrases. They're sentences that usually begin with words like what, where, who, do, does, how, why. Those are questions. A, a question is not a lengthy, whiny diatribe about something in the news that's bothering you and then saying, right? That's not a question. So in keeping with the spirit of the exercise, please ask Questions. 800-848-9222-800-848-9222. Let me begin with Pete in Piscataway. It's that away. Hello, Pete. Hi, Frank. Hey, Frank, have you, have you ever seen William Shatner's performance in the Andersonville trial? And have you ever seen the trial of George Armstrong Custer on TV? A long time ago. Yeah. Or Ken, uh, Ken Howard. Oh, you did? Okay. Well, Ken well, Howard, well, uh, well, no. I mean, I was saying yes to the first part, the Andersonville oh. trial. I've seen that. That's a, a terrific, terrific film with uh, not just William Shatner giving, I think, one of his best performances, but George C. Scott and Martin Sheen, if I'm not mistaken. Um, they're all terrific. I didn't see the second thing that you mentioned. Re reiterate that for me. Oh, that would be the trial of George Armstrong Custer. It's hypothetical, starring uh, Brian Keith. William Daniels, Ken Howard, and Blythe Downer, oh, actually. Really? I love William Daniels. He's one of my favorites. Uh, I am, uh, I'm gonna check that out, actually. I'm gonna see if I can get that on, uh, DVD or something. Again, it's I- It's on, you, it's whole thing's on YouTube is now, it? Frank. Great. I will yeah. check it out. Thank you. Again, I don't know when I have time to watch all this stuff. I, uh, try, it takes me a week to watch a whole film, maybe, but I will check that out. Uh, the court, the court martial of general, of George Armstrong, Custer, not the trial of George Armstrong Custer, but I will check that out. But yeah, I recommend that, uh, the, the Andersonville. That is the, that the Andersonville trial is wonderful. It's a TV adaptation of a, a Broadway play and it was, it was on PBS initially, but it's really just, uh, it's terrific. It's terrific. It's, um, 
deals with the Civil War, and it's just really well done. Great history and great drama. 800-848-9222, Jake is in New Jersey. Hello, Jake. Hi, Frank. Um, we know that nothing could go to the speed of light, right? And um, in order for aliens to be on Earth, they would have to come here at the speed of light since they're not in our galaxy and they're so far. So how could you believe that any UFO sightings are from distant galaxies? Well, I don't know that they are. I mean, I just think that uh, clearly there are UFOs, right? So the question is, but, but, but it would, but what it would are have to take the millions of light years right. to get here. Right. So maybe so, again, have seen them coming. Uh, thank you, Jake. Okay. So um, to, I'll do my best to answer your question without you interrupting me. So, the there are objects that have been seen they've been seen on radar they've been seen on photograph they've been seen by seasoned military pilots they've been seen by civilians so the question is not are do ufo's exist or now that they call them uaps the question is what are they are they american military aircraft maybe maybe are they foreign military aircraft? I certainly hope not, because if there's a foreign government that has aircraft that can move like that, then we are all in trouble. Are they the aircraft of a private defense contractor? Maybe. Are they something otherworldly? I have no idea. Are they time travelers from the future? I don't know. Maybe. That was uh, Dr. Sky's theory that he posited recently. Are they visitors from another dimension? Maybe. I have no idea. That's why, rather than close our mind to the possibility of things, I think we need to be exploring what are the possibilities. And some of these uh, objects have some sort of a relationship with the oceans. So it's it, there's there's something going on. And hopefully we get some answers. We're going to get into this a little bit more in about two hours because there's a Republican congressman from Tennessee that is raising a lot of uh, important questions about this as well. 800-848-9222. Alfreo is in Newark. Hello, Alfreo. Yes, Frank, how are you? Uh, Frank, if I am not mistaken, a long time ago you said something about that everything on the radio has a past, like uh, they did something wrong. What was your problem? Uh, well, you can Google me. I mean, uh, I, I, I went my first show back on WABC in June of 2020. It was a Sunday night. And I started the show by listing every possible negative thing that has ever come out about me. So I, and it took me about 10, 15 minutes to go through that. So I'm not going to go ahead and uh, go through, uh, go through every single negative thing and remind people about them. I did it on, on our first show. You can check out the podcast, Frank Morano interviews and more. Just go to red apple podcast network.com and search Frank Morano interviews and more. But I mean, you name it. I mean, you Google my name. There's a lot of political stuff that I've been accused of over the years. There's been all sorts of stuff. I mean, just just really, really awful things. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Reverend Morano, I have a question. Going way back, and we had to do it all over again. What's the whole business with the radio business? As far as do you have to go to a school? Do they send you up to Palookaville? Is radio dying, even though we love it? You know, uh, what's if you were to tell someone today? Go to a college, not go to a college, break into a small station, and if everything headed towards home, will everything be a home studio? Thank uh, you. Well, so thank you. I have no idea what direction everybody is headed. 
What I would tell someone today is do something where you can hone your craft, where you can get some practice. Again, depending on the age of the person that I'm speaking to, if I'm speaking to an eight-year-old, I might give them different advice than if I'm speaking to a 17-year-old. But I'm still a big believer in public access television. I got I learned a great deal through public access television, both being an on-air personality and learning a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. Big believer in that. I'm also a big believer in internships at uh, at media outlets so that you can not only learn the ropes and uh, and see how things are, are going, but you can actually develop a very broad network of contacts that may help you later in life. So I, I think getting experience is the most important thing. And now there are different ways to do that. Now, with YouTube and with social media, there are all sorts of additional avenues for gaining visibility that weren't there when I started doing this uh, many, many years ago. But I so I would probably incorporate an element of that. So I would probably pursue a hybrid approach. If I was advising a, a 17 year old or an 18 year old, I would say, you know, come up with something you're passionate about that nobody is doing right or even if somebody's doing it whether it's chicken you could do a a a blog or a video blog just about your reviews of different chicken places and try to do something at your local college radio station go to a college that has a radio station or um do something at your local public access television station ideally all three and then try and get an internship at a radio station is everything moving towards home studios i don't know I don't know. I thought that was the case maybe 10 or 15 years ago, but I'm seeing a little bit of movement away from that. Uh, as far as what the future holds, Al, I literally lie awake, not at night, but in the afternoon, trying to think about that sort of stuff. I have no idea, no idea which way things are going. 800-848-9222. Anne is in Georgia. Hello, Ann. Hey, I have a question for you, Frank. I'm ready. Um yeah, so my father is African. My mother is my, I'm I'm white. My father's African. My mother's American. Does that make me an African American? Uh, you're white and you're you're give me my, your lineage again. My father's African, from mm-hmm. South Africa. Gotcha. My mother's American. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I Does think you're African American. I think you're as African American as anybody else. Yeah, I I be, I'll be honest, I really don't love that title because I think what people who use that title really mean it to describe is black. But yet, if you take it literally, people like Elon Musk, who would not, uh, who was certainly not black, he's genuinely an African American. And yet, people who are black who happen to come from Jamaica don't get to use that title. So I'm not a big believer in hyphenated Americanism. I try not to refer to myself as an Italian American. I tend to side with Theodore Roosevelt, who uh, was very hostile towards hyphenated Americanism. I don't like hyphenated Americanism in general, but yeah, if you're a big believer in hyphenated Americanism and you want to use it, yes, you're just as entitled to use as uh, African American as anybody else, as far as I'm concerned. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Alex is in Brooklyn. Hello, Alex. Hey, Frank. Thanks for taking the call. So I got three short questions. Number one, if you had to guess how many times you said the name William Shatner in your life, what would that guess be? If you have to guess, not just say, I don't know. The other, the other question is uh, a follow-up on that caller. Uh, if you go to learn how to be a broadcaster in school, do you think that that takes away from the person's originality because you're being shaped into something? And the final question is, 
is what I really want to know. How did you get your first radio job, uh, professional job? Um, what was the process for getting that job? Um, well, so again, the problem with these threefold questions is I, I've lost track. So the first one was how many times have I said the name? If you had a guess. Yeah. I, yeah, I so don't know. I'm, a million, a hundred thousand, five hundred thousand. See, it's, I, I don't know. I'll say a hundred thousand. I'll, I'll figure that's a pretty good estimate. Maybe, maybe a hundred and twenty thousand over the course of my life, right? I'm trying to think. I wasn't really saying it much before I was five or six, right? So yeah, I'll say mm-hmm. two hundred thousand, uh, just to be conservative. Second question was, was what? If you think, do you think someone that goes to broadcasting school to learn how to become a broadcaster on a radio show, does that take away from their natural, you know, character and originality? Uh, and for, because you go to broadcasting school, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think specific. so. I, I don't think so. I don't think you have to go to broadcasting school, but I think it doesn't necessarily, look, if you're a creative person, if you're an intelligent person, if you're an entertaining person, there's yeah. nothing that learning the basics of broadcasting is going to do to take those characteristics away from you. Uh, in fact, uh, mm-hmm. I think one of the greatest radio announcers of all time is uh, Howard Stern, and his father was a radio mm-hmm. engineer, and he basically had told him when he was encouraging him to uh, pursue this uh, uh, broadcasting program at Boston University that, uh, you know, you need to learn how to be a conventional announcer first before you can think about doing wilder and and crazier and wacky things. As far as my first radio job, I started as an intern at a a radio station, and then I got to work there part-time as a call screener and um and a uh and a tape editor then i uh, worked there as a producer and then while there as a producer i got to fill in for a lot of the other hosts when they would take time off then i went to another radio station i was still working as a producer and uh, the general manager at that station at the time gave me an opportunity to do a show once a week. I, I was heavily advocated for behind the scenes by Curtis Lewa. That's why I'm always, I'll always be appreciative of Curtis's efforts in giving me a helping hand in my career because without Curtis's advocacy, I don't know that I ever would have had the opportunity not only to fill in for him, but to have a weekly show of my own. And then uh, I continued to produce a, a, a show during the week and then host a weekly show for, uh, I don't know, at least 10 or 11 years. No, maybe more than that. Maybe 12 years. And then, um, and then three years ago, I came here. So there we are. 800-848-9222. Uh, we're going to continue with your questions straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Friday night. So, Matt Blaze, it seems that this this song is very much in your Friday repertoire, I guess, right? Well, it's a Friday song. It is, but 
That's the reason. The perfect Friday song, and if you're going to have a Friday repertoire, what's the perfect Friday song? Is Dave Edmonds' Here Comes the Weekend. Well, that, that is, would play toward the end. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But you do that. Th- that is the greatest Friday song of all time. All right. If you're just tuning in, this is The Other Side of Midnight. We are uh, taking your questions on any subject as part of The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Let's say hello to Roy in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, Roy. Frank. Hello. I have never, ever seen rain and a storm like what's going on up here right now. It is literally scary. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Wow. But now, why I'm calling, I have severe diabetic neuropathy and fibromyalgia, which is a very horrible thing to have. Sure. How about if you bring a doctor on? Because I know there's got to be a lot of people that are listening right now. If they are, I hope they call in about it. And you bring a doctor on the radio show and discuss the uh, severity of the diabetic neuropathy, how painful it is, what it's like to live with it, the cures or treatments for right. it, and All right, right. also it's, the it's not, We're at the point where it's not really a question. That's more of a suggestion. But, yes, that's actually not a bad idea. And uh, I was just talking with some doctors about doing some medical segments upcoming. So maybe we'll do something like that on Monday or Tuesday, maybe even something where people can call in because uh, – I know people do have a lot of questions about uh, about health issues, not just diabetic neuropathy, but a lot of other health issues in general. 800-848-9222-800-848-9222. Our friend Gino is in Brooklyn. Hello, Gino. Good morning, Reverend. Howdy. Hey, my question is hi, it's about the migrant crisis. As complicated as it is, and we know it is. It's also unsustainable in the long run. Um, one of the reasons that we're in this quandary is because that doesn't get much press. Is that New York State says that we have a right to assist the needy. It's part of our, our constitution. Do you think it would be easier to just have a constant, complicated constitutional convention that might get us out of the weeds a little bit with dealing with this crisis, both on a state level and on a city level? Well, are you talking about the uh, the right to shelter mandate? Yes, because that's part of it. And that, also just welfare in general, food yeah, stamps, uh, shelter, you right. know, uh, everything so else. The, housing. Yeah, thank you, Jim. Yeah, the um, the right to shelter mandate is not in the New York State Constitution. That is that is a New York City initiative, which Mayor Adams is currently trying to scrap. And it's just a policy. It's just a policy that came about as a result of a lawsuit in the 1970s. So I think we should absolutely scrap it. And that's one of the things that I'm glad that the mayor is doing. As far as your broader question about a state constitutional convention, you can go back and listen to the shows that I was doing with Bill Samuels at the time in 2017. I have been you can read my advocacy for the issue of a state constitutional convention Going back to 2004, I have been advocating for a constitutional convention for the last 19 years. And every 20 years, you hear the same arguments from the same left-wing groups and the same right-wing groups, and they they scare people into voting no on a constitutional convention because New Yorkers have the opportunity to vote, do you want a constitutional convention every 20 years? And almost every 20 years, they vote no because they get scared by the right-wing groups that it's going to cost too much. They get scared by the left-wing groups that it's going to take away your pension. 
And it's, I mean, it's possible, but it's, uh, it's just fear, fright, and hysteria. So I'm all for a state constitutional convention. And if there were to be a convention, which I would love to see, I would absolutely run as a delegate to that state constitutional convention. All right. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Thomas is in Baltimore, WCBM land. Hello, Thomas. How you doing, Frank? I'm yeah, right. uh, the U.S. are doing pretty good this year, so they, uh, Let's say they'd make it to the World Series. Uh, what team would you put together from the 80s and 90s to uh, play the Orioles for the World Series? Well, I think it would be great to have them play against the uh, the the 86 Mets because in some ways it would be a rematch of the 1969 World Series where you had the Mets and the Orioles. Plus, it would just be so much fun to see that uh, that 86 Mets team in action again with Gary Carter and Daryl Strawberry and Doc Gooden and Keith Hernandez and uh Lenny Dykstra when before he was totally crazy. So I think that would be uh that would be my pick. It would be the the 86 Mets. Great. Thank okay, you. And thank good you. luck. Good luck to the Orioles. I love that they're, they're doing, doing so well. They're doing pretty good this year. They're doing great. I mean, Tampa Bay is doing great too. So I don't know that uh they'll be able to win the division, but the way that uh, baseball playoff structure is now, you don't necessarily need to win the division in order to uh to do well and win the win the playoffs in the World Championship. The Phillies proved the that Orioles, last year. Baby. Yeah, I'm I'm rooting for them in the American League anyway. 800-848-9222. Uh, 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Uh, let me say hello to Norman. Storman Norman in Brooklyn. Hello, Norman. What's yeah, your question? Frank, uh, first, I hate the Mets. But anyway, 3,000 U.S. troops are heading towards Ukraine. What are your thoughts on that, Frank? I think it's a disaster. I think it is an absolute disaster. And I think we are... We are we are hurtling towards a, a the potential of either a major quagmire situation like Afghanistan or a Vietnam where a drip, 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 where things just get worse and worse. And my fear is it could actually be much worse because neither Afghanistan nor Vietnam had nuclear weapons. So uh, I am. Uh, thank you for the call, Norman. I think it's awful. If there's one thing that gets me to vote for Donald Trump this year it will be this issue because I believe he understands the stakes. And I believe with the exception of Robert F. Kennedy Jr., most of the other people running do not understand the stakes. And I'm looking forward to having more presidential candidates on this program. I think next week we're going to try and have Marianne Williamson on this program. She's running as a Democrat, but I would love to have Larry Elder back. I'd love to have Doug Bertram on. I'd love to have everybody, Trump himself, Mike Pence. You know, I'd love to have everybody on this program because to me, I just I watch the news and I read the papers and I listen to the radio and I want to scream because I'm thinking to myself, we have a serious problem with homelessness in American cities. We have a serious problem with a border situation that is out of control. And we are sending cluster bombs to Europe that are going to unfortunately blow up civilians and innocent children for decades and what is the world focused on in the world of the media? The cocaine at the White House. Who cares? Who cares? It affects no one. Now, I, I say that sort of tongue in cheek. I've talked about it a little bit. Um, it certainly is an indication of a serious security lapse. And it's always a fun mystery who done it. But there are so many important issues in the country and in the world right now. And I look at the hours that are being spent talking about Whose cocaine was it? Who cares? 
Sanka is in Brooklyn. Hello, Sanka. Hi. If you have a choice to go to, I know that guy seems to be a favorite of you, William Shatner, the guy with the Star Trek, to leave your baby boy and your wife, (laughs) will you go live with him? Of course not. No way. That's the most ridiculous question I've ever heard. Absolutely not. uh, Never, never, absolutely never in a million years. 800-848-9222. Mark is in Brooklyn. Hello, Mark. Hey, I just wanted to ask a follow-up to uh, uh, name's question about sure. the UFO. Sure, go ahead. About aliens, you know, how is it possible to believe in aliens if we know that they're not, you know, anywhere close? And the only way to get here, you know, from where they are is to travel faster than the speed of light, which we know is... Well, um, that's what you say. I mean, I I think that there there might... It's certainly possible that there might be alien intelligences that are able to harness speeds that we can't... that we can't even conceive of. You say, by any science, you understand that it's impossible to travel faster than the speed of light. Uh, a few years ago, I came across an old history book from the 1950s, 1940s, 1950s. And it was a, it was a, no, it was a science book. And it says in the book that travel from the earth to the moon is not possible. That was the settled understanding of science in the late 40s, early 1950s. And yet, 20 years later, we were there. We were at the moon. So you say light speed is not possible to travel faster than the speed of light. You say that because that's based on the science that we currently understand. Now, is it possible that somebody might develop either on this planet or elsewhere some type of warp speed where you can go faster than the speed of light? I think so. And, um, you know, it goes if you look at all the testimonials we've heard coming out of places like Roswell and, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on this now because we're going to revisit this in two hours. So if you want to talk more about this, call back in uh, in two hours and we'll we'll get to it. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Brandon is in New Jersey. Hello, Brandon. Hi, Frank. Uh, you say you want your uh, own Wikipedia page, but to start a Wikipedia page, you need a birthday. And we know you keep yours well guarded like a lady over 40. So would you rather have a Wikipedia page or just or keep your birthday secret? Well, I don't think you do need a birthday. I, I have seen a number of personalities that uh, that don't have their birthday on their Wikipedia page. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I, all right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, that is, again, most of them do have a birthday, but it is not a it is not a requirement. For years, Barry Farber's birthday was not on there. It's up there now. I think one of his daughters updated it. But but no, I don't think you do need uh, a birthday. There are plenty of Wikipedia pages where you don't have a birthday from the person on there. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Tony is in New Jersey. Hello, Tony. Hey, Frank. So, you know, a lot of stressful things are going on these days, and I think people look toward entertainment. And I'm asking you if you can, I know you, you like a bit of gambling, and if you can open a casino, can you tell us what you would call it, where you would put it, if you would have a partner, and tell us about what would be your differential, like what would you offer in your casino that we wouldn't be able to get in other casinos, Ooh. and tell us about your security and safety. Well, and the name of it. Yeah, that, th- these are all good questions, um, uh, Tony. Th- I like the I like this question a lot, and I'd like to think about it a little bit more. But just off the beaten path, um, one, I don't have any money, so I'd certainly need some partners. What I would try to do 
uh, is I would invite the former heads of many uh, of several different political parties, either national or on a state level, to join me in partnership with this. Right. And we would, for example, the former head of the Republican Party, the former head of the Democratic Party, former head of the Libertarian Party, former head of the Reform Party, former head of the Green Party. And I'd love to send the message with that, that this is a, a casino for everybody. And selfishly, I'd love this to be a place where all the political parties feel comfortable holding their events, including things like debates and things of that nature. So I would call it because it would have this collection of political party chairmen. I would call it the chairman's club. OK, in terms of it ha- would have to be in Atlantic City. Right. So right now there's a, a deed restriction on the existing properties that you can't, uh, you know, can't have gambling. But I think that the, I'd love to build something in the area behind the Borgata. There's still some beautiful land that is undeveloped behind the Borgata in the Farley Marina area. I would put it there. That's where Harris is. That's where the Borgata is. That's where the Golden Nugget is. In terms of games, I would have more table games. One of the things that's so frustrating now when I go to play is, Everyone's crowded around um, one craps table because that's the one open. So I know that they make more of their money with the digital gaming. I would have more table games, more table games, and that would be the emphasis. That would set us apart. More table games. Also, more old school table games. I like to play Baccarat, and you can really, even if you play high-stakes Baccarat, you can only go and find what they call basically mini Baccarat or easy Baccarat. You can't go anywhere in Atlantic City, and I think there's only a handful of places in Vegas, you can't go anywhere and find a good old-school Baccarat game. You can go to uh, a place and find an old-school poker room. Most of the casinos do have some sort of a poker room, which we would also have, by the way. A lot of casinos don't have a poker room. I would absolutely have a poker room. But I'd say two nights a week, we play an old school Baccarat game where the players themselves get to deal just like in the James Bond movie Casino Royale. And we would invite the high end players from all over the world, the highest end, the high rollers uh, from all over the world to these high end old school Baccarat games. And we do that twice a week. Also. We would have lower table minimums. I have to tell you, one of the things I really liked about a casino that's now defunct called the Atlantic Club is they prided themselves on appealing to low rollers. Now, it turned out not to be a winning strategy because they went out of business, but there were also a lot of other factors. Now, it's so frustrating, and I know I have cousins that love to go to Mohegan Sun and Foxwoods, and they're complaining to me that you can't play blackjack sometimes on the weekend without finding a table that has a $50 minimum. So I would always make sure that there's a table, whether it's craps, blackjack, uh, pie gal poker, whatever the case may be, that has a $10 minimum. I'd also love to bring back the idea of entertainers doing residencies. So even if it would, um, even if it would cost a little bit of money, I would get some real terrific entertainer along the magnitude of a, a Britney Spears or a Selena Gomez, somebody that you lose money on. 
to set up a residency at a hotel. That's the kind of thing you really don't see in, in Atlantic City anymore. And you do see it in Vegas, but we don't have that in, in Vegas. So, excuse me, in, in Atlantic City. So I would do, I would do that. Uh, a safety and security, I'd want to, I'd have to give a little bit more thought to. Uh, I don't necessarily know the answer to but i'd like to think about that a little more tony and uh maybe have a more fleshed out answer 800-848-9222 800-848-9222 let me say hello to peter in the queens hello peter hello frank how are you doing i, I am um happier than a penguin in a tuxedo store <laughs> i have two questions for you because uh, i listen to your show regularly and a while ago, you had a judge that you said you were going to take to court or something like that, and I missed it, and I didn't catch anything, but what happened um, with that? And the uh, second question I'll give you one is, uh, I'll tell you after you first. Well, first I, I think you're talking about the case of the, the Trump judge, Juan Mershon, and I, I had written a letter to the uh, Commission on Judicial Ethics and uh, written a letter to the chief administrative judge, both for the court that uh, that he serves in and for the um, the state. Uh, but uh, they ruled that my letter was uh, that they had looked at it and they didn't find that it was a conflict of interest. And he's still presiding over the case. So it basically went nowhere. No, I see. Usually that's what happens, I guess. But and my second question is, uh, I spoke to you about this before. Guardianship. Are you going to have anything on that? Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Very soon. Maybe as soon as next week, actually, Peter. Uh, maybe Wednesday well, or my, Thursday of next week. That, well, that's my second question is I've been doing guardianship with uh, no avail for two years. So I was wondering if I could possibly get on the show or not, not get on the show. You know, you, you can use me as a reference and stuff like that because I had, and I think you've helped me because you have sent me. Uh, some lawyers to get into and stuff like yeah. that. But this is, I'm the I'm one that has the wife. Right. So Peter, years. I, just, I, I feel bad that you've had a tough situation and I'm happy to address it when we have a guest on. Um, but do, do, do you have a specific question though, that you want me to address? Well, yes, because uh, on my guardianship case has been going on for two years. The judge has been completely biased against me. And I, there's lots of proof about that. Could I do anything about it? You know, I don't know the particulars of of your case. I um, I, the the short answer is I don't know. I mean, I really, I I guess it depends on the nature of 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 the bias. I would um, maybe think about talking to a legal aid attorney, Peter, and see if they can help you in terms of uh, getting a different judge assigned. I, again, I, I know it's a frustrating situation for you and for anybody that's been in that position, and I know a lot of people that have been in similar positions, but. It's um, it's one of those things. Unfortunately, the wheels of justice churn very slowly. They're designed to do that. They're designed to perpetuate this bureaucracy. And it's funny. I wrote to both President Obama and President Trump. I don't think I wrote to President Biden, but I wrote to both President Obama and President Trump when they had openings on the Supreme Court, urging them to appoint a non-lawyer to the U.S. Supreme Court. I really do think we need more non-attorneys, laymen, in the legal system. Because unfortunately, I and I say this as someone that never went to law school, what we've seen is that people like me, people like Peter, laymen, people that don't have law degrees, we feel as if we're helpless. You feel totally impotent 
you feel as if when you need to go to court, you don't feel like the court exists to uh, pursue justice. You feel like the court exists to perpetuate itself and this bureaucracy of attorneys. And it's a real shame. And one of the things I'd like to see with more non-lawyer judges is an opening of the system up to pro se litigants and to make the system just more accessible to people like Peter who want answers and want to be treated fairly. Not looking for not again. I don't know the specifics of Peter's case, but I assume he just wants to be treated fairly. All right. Two open lines. If you have a question, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Ladies and gents, turn up your sound system to the sound of Carlos Santana in the GMB. Get away. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We are answering your questions on any subject as part of... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank... Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. All right. Uh, two open lines if you want to jump in with a question. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Martin is in the Queens. Hello, Martin. Hello. Uh, does Hunter Biden have white privilege? You know, I really don't subscribe. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know how to answer that question. I think he certainly has Biden privilege. He has the same privilege that Jared Kushner does, having family that is very well connected and well to do and being in a position where people want to pay you. Not necessarily because you're the brightest guy in the world, and there's no disparagement of either Jared Kushner or Hunter Biden, but this is unfortunately the way things work, but because of your proximity to people that you're related to. So I think it's more – I don't think it's a race thing. I think it's more a familial thing. Uh, that's that's how I see it. 800-848-9222. Frank is on Staten Island. Hello, Frank. How you doing? Good evening. All right. Can you please talk about – the Charles Manson disciple, Leslie Van Houten, getting out of prison. I've been wondering if the children of the LaBianca family can actually like follow her around and harass her. Well, no, they can't follow her around and harass her. You know, nobody's allowed to harass anybody, especially once you're uh, a free citizen. 
Um, yeah, it's an interesting case. I haven't looked at the at the details in terms of uh, in terms of why they choose chose to give her parole and how consistent that is with other cases. But I will. I will look at it. I don't know. I don't know many of the details, though. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two one open line. If you want to jump on board, David is in the boogie down Bronx. Hello, David. Yes. Good morning, Frank. Um, I wasn't going to call in, but you mentioned something about cluster munitions again. You have this. And I'll get to the question very quickly instead of saying what I was going to say. All right. Why have you never called for Russia to immediately vacate Ukrainian territory? Why don't you call for the Russians to stop using cluster munitions, which they are? Well, stop I'm calling for landmines. I'm calling for stop it right now. Oh, okay. okay. All right, Frank, because you never have on any guest that says that. You always constantly well, David, imply that it's right. the Ukrainians that are in okay, the wrong. David, thank you. Uh, it's not really a question, right? So if you're asking me to denounce Russia's use of cluster munitions, absolutely 100 percent loudly, I denounce that as I did Putin's invasion of Ukraine to begin with. Now, the the exception to that is uh, Crimea. I mean, it's clear to me that the people that actually live in Crimea want to be part of Russia. And Crimea was always part of Russia from the time of Catherine the Great to the time of Joseph Stalin. And when Stalin moved it from being part of Russia to part of Ukraine, it really wasn't that big of a deal because they were all part of the same country. It was almost like moving uh, Staten Island from being part of New York State to being part of New Jersey. You're still part of the United States of America, so it's not the biggest deal in the world. All of a sudden, if New York and uh, New Jersey are in different countries, then it becomes a much bigger deal. So that's... My problem with Zelensky's insistence on his conditions of ending this war is he's saying that this war is not going to end unless they can have Crimea back. Crimea doesn't want to be part of Ukraine. The people that live there are ethnic Russians. They speak Russian. That's their history. That's their culture. So um, as far as the Donbass republics, you know, I don't know how to handle that, honestly. I'd love to see some sort of internationally supervised elections to determine their fate, be it Ukrainian, Russian, or independent, leaning towards one station or not. But, yeah, let me be very clear. I completely abhor the use of cluster munitions irrespective of who is using it. Russia, United States, anybody. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Mike is in Woodside. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank. If you want to do the uh, uh, what is it, Lucky Nine, the Baccarat, you should go to Macau. They got dozens of tables and rows when you enter the casinos there in Macau. My question to you, though, however, tonight is: uh, you have been reporting uh, on WABC, not not to you in particular, but but everybody about this ship that burned in Jersey. The uh, I forget the name Corte de Azorio or something like that. It's right, Italian, the uh, Grande yeah. Casta de Avorio. Yeah, yes, and and the question I have is, what kind of cars were on it? Because nobody's really gone into that. Nobody's mentioned there's been thousands of cars on board. Were these electric? Were these what kind of cars were they? You know, that's a great question. I have uh, I have no idea. Uh, but I, they said there's 5,000 vehicles on board. Uh, I don't know uh, what kind of vehicles they were, but I think that's certainly worth exploring. And I, if I can't find that on my own, I will reach out to the, um, to the fire department, the Newark Fire Department, and see if they have any information that they are uh, releasing to the public. So thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. Manly is in Manhattan. Very ap- aptly titled name there. Hello, Manly. 
Hey, Frank. Uh, I, it takes a village. That's my philosophy, and I like the uh, original team. Uh, whatever happened to Alex Barnard? Uh, you know, I uh, I'm not really I'm not really sure if uh, his departure from the network was his decision or or the or the network's decision. Even if I did, I don't think it's my place to say. I think that's up to him uh, to to say or the uh, or the network. But I actually corresponded with uh, Alex yesterday. He seems to be doing pretty well. He's loving having regular hours, and uh, I don't want to blow up a spot here, but he has a third interview with a, ma- a major media outlet. It's one that's a household name that he's very excited about uh, about potentially getting that job and starting there. And I, I wish him the best of luck. I think he's got a bright future, and he's a, a bright young young man. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Melissa is on Long Island. Hello, Melissa. Hello. Good evening. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. All right. It's an ongoing joke with me and my husband. I don't understand Morse code. Morse code. The dots and dashes. I don't understand it either. I, I remember when I was in fourth grade, I tried to I, I tried to make a point of, of learning it. I, I don't I don't I don't get it either. I mean, but if, if you're in a submarine, unfortunately, what happened with those people that have nothing to do with that. But if you're down under and we're up here, we can receive that. I mean, it makes no sense to me. What, what makes no sense to you? How the dots like and dashes in, work? Just in general, like if like if you're in a submarine and we're up here on on land and they they were sending Morse code like during wars, how does that work? Well, uh, how does what work? I, I'm not sure I uh, I understand the question. Like, the trend, like like how do we how do we receive it and how do you send it? With so a, with a boop, you know what I mean? Yeah. It well, it was a, a, a short wave. Uh, I think a short wave radio. I, it was a, either a, initially a telegraph. You'd use a telegraph key and sounder. You see a lot of old movies, especially we- uh, westerns, where they show those things. It's got sort of a, a wooden base, and then, then there's brass on it, and sort of a rubber hammer-like thing. And you see them um, pat- tapping this this uh, lever, and it creates either a dot or a dash. And the dots or dashes spell letters that then get received by another telegraph. So that's why AT and T, it's American Telephone. And telegraph because initially they were both in the telephone and and the telegraph business so i think the the telegraph was then replaced by a shortwave radio i'm not i'm not sure about that but that's that's my understanding is you have to have a telegraph yeah it's always so i just my brain doesn't comprehend it but if you want to go for baccarat go to a catskills uh monticello you know, I've been to that casino. They don't have old school baccarat, they, I, and I've done well there. I and we're airing right there in that area now on WVOS, and we're going to talk about the Catskills in about in about ten minutes. But I like that casino, uh, Resorts World. It's a lot of fun, and I did well there. I will let the only time I was there, I think I won about fourteen hundred bucks playing baccarat, which is, was money that I could use. But the, I'm talking about kind of the old school baccarat where you're sitting around a table and each player gets to deal. At that uh, that casino, they had MIDI Baccarat, where the the players get to touch the cards and control the cards, but they don't get to deal. It's not the same as seeing Orson Welles in the Casino Royale and the old school James Bond um, situation. All right, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Jeff in Jersey City, very quickly, have about a minute here. 
Uh, very quick, Frank. You are very talented. You could generate your audience from zero. Nobody there. Thank you. You're an audience quickly. Uh, but, and that's what I want to ask you about the, the radio lineup and how it's transferred one audience to the other. And a quick example. I listen to Levin religiously. Right. And Jeff, um, just remember, we're on a quick timeline here. So I need you to wrap okay, up in okay, about 30 okay, seconds. Sure. So, so at the end of his audience, you know who comes in there. And I don't like it. I find it offensive that the way he uh, presents his the information. All right, so Jeff, what's your question? We're running out of time. What's your question? My, my question is, why is he there? This is, to me, classic white privilege. You got guys on your on, in your station. Like, All right, uh, Jeff, uh, I, don't, I don't even know who you're talking about. Okay, um, I, I don't know if you're talking about O'Reilly, but if you're talking about O'Reilly, O'Reilly does very well, so I appreciate the call. I can't answer programming questions because I can give you my opinion on them, but I don't have any control over, uh, over programming. All right, can we squeeze in one more? Ryan in Massachusetts, hello. Hey, Frank, what's going on? I got a question. So yep. you're in a steel cage match or a Hell in a Cell match versus Curtis Sliwa. You got him where you want him. You're going to go for your finishing move? Are you going to Jimmy Snoopify sucker him? Or are you going to throw him off the cage like mankind? No, I, I mean, my move is Ric Flair's move, Greg Valentine's move. I'm doing the figure four. I'm oh, you're working, doing the figure four? I'm doing the figure four. You think? As, well, no doubt about it. Especially, I know which knee Curtis has that's bad. So I would be working on that knee the entire match. And then I, you know, I would do the, the figure four and forget about it. He would be, he would be, he would be done. Now, the truth is Curtis is actually even, um, injured at, with all the injuries that he has and ages. Curtis is actually one of the toughest people that I've ever met. I mean, who else could survive being shot multiple times? He claims it's five. I have my doubts about five. I think it's more like three. And then use the back seat of the taxi cab that he was in, propel himself to the front seat. And end out up outside and survive. I mean, nobody else could do that. Curtis is as tough as they come, tough as nails. Best question. Tony, New Jersey, about the casino. Tony in New Jersey, call back. We will give you a prize. 800-848-9222. Elliot Gordon is here. We're going to talk comedy, the Catskills, and more. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. There's one thing that seems to bring anybody that follows the news even a little bit together. It doesn't matter whether you're left-wing, right-wing, non-political. You look at the news, whether it's local news, national news, international news, and you think... Oh, my, how depressing. Can't we use a break from that? Well, it turns out a lot of people can use a break from the depressing nature of what's dominating the headlines. And one of the people who is helping to deliver that break to seniors and audiences of all ages, both in person and virtually, is Elliot Gordon. Elliot Gordon has been on our program before, and unlike a lot of the other guests we have, who some people like, some people don't like, the response to Elliot Gordon was universally positive. He's an entrepreneur. 
a former aide to Mayor Giuliani, a producer and a talent agent, and he's doing one of the most innovative things in comedy, which may seem counterintuitive because in some ways it's very much a throwback to comedy of yesteryear. Elliot Gordon, welcome back to the program. Frank, it is great being back here. I had such a good time last time. I was here about a month ago, and you have so many fans. I got such a response. We heard you on Frank's show. We heard you on Frank's show. I said, you know, this is amazing, but you have got tremendous listenership, and it is a pleasure to be back at WABC, and I have to start by thanking Curtis Sliwa for introducing me to you. Well, uh, that's uh, most people would not be thanking Curtis for that. Most people <laughs> blame Curtis for things like that. You're very kind. Uh, now, we're very fortunate not only to be on WABC in New York, but a lot of great stations around the country, including, since you've been here, we have added a number of great stations, including WVOS in the Catskills, the voice of Sullivan County. Great station out there. Great folks. And for folks that might be listening in that area now, we got into a little bit the history of the Catskills as it relates to comedy. Give people both who live there and who might be listening in Alaska or Tennessee a little bit of a a thumbnail sketch of why the Catskills was such an integral part of America's comedic tradition. Sure. What happened was, uh, Frank, as a young man, I had gotten involved, uh, became an agent, and I got involved with the older guys because they were a little bit easier uh, to have access to. And they said, hey, you know, Alan King, Jackie Mason, Pat Cooper, Robert Klein, they say, hey, just get us a job. You got 10%. You pick up a few bucks for the pocket and uh, one thing led to another so I wound up spending a lot of time with them dinners lunches uh, car rides and they gave me the answers that you were just talking about the competition in that small area was intense because all of those guys were there at the same time. Pat Cooper said, "L, I'm up there. Jerry Lewis is standing over there. Milton Berle is standing over there. Jackie Mason and Jack Carter. If I don't get a laugh every 15 minutes, I'm toast. I'm gone. Mm. And the young Jackie, Jackie Mason told me, he said, "L, it was a place, if you wanted to be a comedian, it was a school for comedy. You knew you had to be up there. You couldn't get a job right away as a comedian. You got a job as a recreation director. Jack got a job as a lifeguard. I said, could you swim? He said, no, but I still got a job there as a lifeguard. And the idea is that you had to be there. So, you know, that's what happened. The competition Plus, at the same time, they gave you a little bit of chance to fall on your butt a couple of times to work. They'd stay with you. And believe it or not, you had eight over 500 places in that small area that at least were big enough to need a comedian and a singer on the weekend. And then, of course, the Grossingers and the Concords and the heavyweights. So that's really the reason. I don't think we spoke about this the last time you were here, but a lot of a lot of my compatriots growing up, they would go to the one resort that was sort of the Italian section of the Catskills, Villa Roma. Yeah. Uh, how did the, how did Villa Roma sneak in in this uh, surrounded by predominantly sure. Jewish resorts? Well, you know, very interesting. Interesting. Is that in Poconos, Villa Roma? Is no, that I, think, what I'm I think it was in, oh, it was uh, in, in the Catskills. Cats- unless I'm misremembering. Well, well I know, uh, you know, they said that the, the Poconos also had the beautiful hotels and the beautiful resorts. Why didn't they get all the great comedians? And it's really a very simple answer. The Catskills staggered the show times. So if you were a young comic mm. and you're working the Poconos, all the showtimes were the same time. You got one job that night. But if you're a young Jerry Lewis and you're in the Catskills and the showtimes were staggered to give you a chance to move around, you got two, maybe three 
So the reason was to get the extra money. They're all ran to the Catskills. That is interesting. You, you know, when we, you're an analyst of, of humor and you've worked with some of the greatest comedians of all time. We're going to talk about some of them in a moment. But when, when we use the term borscht belt humor or yeah. borscht belt comedy, that comes from the Catskills and people almost use it these days to be sort of, uh, der- you know, uh, I don't know, denigrating of whatever content they're talking about. I really view Borscht Belt comedy as an art form mm-hmm. and something that uh, that should be celebrated, not something that should be thrown around as a derisive term. How did it come to be that Borscht Belt humor became to be something that was construed as an insult for comedy? Right. Well, first of all, the term Borscht Belt is because most of those hotels were owned by Russian Jewish immigrants, and then Russia is where we get Borscht from. So that's where the term actually originated. But I agree with you it that it is used in uh, in a derogatory term. You know, Pat Cooper once told me, without yesterday, there's no today. Mm. So the idea is those we should be learning from the success of those comedians and not, in a sense, canceling them or put them down. Now, look, could some of those comics be very corny? Uh, Jackie Mason and I one night were in a coffee shop, and I was saying, Jack, I like the old timers better. I like your guys better. And he said, L, what you mean by that is we were more well-rounded entertainers. The truth is a lot of us could do an hour and a half of mother-in-law jokes, which really wasn't that creative. Stephen Colbert, John Stewart, they're a little bit more educated. But what happened with us, because of the pressure we were under, we became more well-rounded. We did impersonations, we danced, we sang, uh, we practically became a member of the family uh, because it was that type of an atmosphere. So we may have become more well-rounded entertainers, mm. the guys today a little bit more structured, more educated, but I think it's a put-down saying, well, they were corny. They were corny, but they were funny exactly. son of a gun. Exactly, no, no doubt about it. All right, for uh, people People that have become new listeners to our show since the last time you were here, or for people that didn't hear your previous uh, appearance with us, give us the kind of Reader's Digest version, elevator pitch on what it is that you do now. Sure. What I did is about seven years ago, I was speaking to our buddy Tommy Dreesen. Pat Cooper, Jackie Mason, guys I would be on the phone with all the time. And I would say, guys, you know, people ask me all the time the anecdotes, the stories you shared with me. I think I'm going to put it into a presentation and see if people really enjoy it or it bombs. And they all said the same thing. You do it. And if you fall on your butt, you get back up. Just do it. And it worked right away. I was sharing stories that uh, Pat told me and Jackie and Alan King and Tommy Dreesen and Robert Klein. And I found out that people really enjoyed the personal touch. It was nothing sensational or earth shattering, but it was just some stories that we had shared at dinner. And I would show clips of their funniest performances and before i know it i had a hit they were saying hey could you come back once a month could you come back twice a month and then when COVID struck they say we need you to stream once that happened i realized i could stream to communities all over the country right now i'm in six different states they're taking me as a television show into the community, and then they're flipping it into four or five hundred of their apartments. So COVID was really sort of a blessing for what you do. In a strange way, yes, Frank. Now, I was the first guy to get cut out 
of going and all us live performance were. We were out of work. Sure. But I said, you know, maybe I could come up with something. And somebody told me about, uh, do you stream? Do you go on Zoom? They said Zoom. I thought they wanted me to run around the living room. I don't know what they're talking about. I said, I'll Zoom. I'll do whatever you want. Send a check. And uh, and before I know it, it just happened. I got a buddy of mine named Vince Calandri. He's about 90 years old, retired in California. He was Ed Sullivan's producer for 14 years. I called Vince. I said, Vince, how do I put this together? And he was great. He said, First of all, you keep those acts at no more than five minutes. He said, when I did the Sullivan Show for 14 years, even the Beatles, we had them do two songs, two minutes each, and then a minute with Ed. We brought them back in the second half because they were the Beatles. But keep that at five minutes and balance it. You got singers, you got comedians, you got anecdotes. And then I started bringing in interviews like our friend Barbara Feldon, mm. Marlo Thomas came on. Cousin Bruce from WABC came on. And so before I know it, I got a full hour variety show. But people keep telling me, you know, we, we, we like your stories. That ties it together. No doubt about it. Absolutely. It. I feel the same way. And, uh, since last you were here, Pat Cooper passed away, and I played some of the clips that you shared of uh, of Pat and talking about his style of comedy, and uh, I think it was really just so interesting. However, now that Pat is is dead and he can't hurt either of us, are there any stories? <laughs> Don't be too sure about that. <laughs> are there any stories about Pat that you care to share now that he's no longer? Yeah, with there us? is. You know, I spoke to his uh, widow Emily. Um, uh, hey, you know, I reached out to her a couple of times, and she never wrote me back, which was uncharacteristic characteristic of her so let her know i was asking for i her, certainly you will yeah. and uh, i asked her i said you know how was he like the last week or two she said oh he was telling jokes to the end in fact like right at the end he was saying you people are trying to keep me alive i want to get out of here <laughs> <laughs> that's particular pat cooper she said but he was telling jokes till the end and uh, uh he was in his early 90s and uh you know look he had a great life and pat uh, he was a very, very special man, very kind to me. We knew each other for 40 years. And uh, he was, all like Tom Dreesen said, he was always on. That was the key. He was always on. That's, uh, that's certainly for sure. Obviously, anybody that's seen you in the show that you do, or even people that have, uh, that have heard you on this program, it's really, you have such a great energy and a great presence. Did you ever think about pursuing a career as a stand-up yourself? Well, you know, that's very interesting. The truth is I hadn't. I very much enjoy now what I'm doing is, and I told Pat, he said, El, he said, don't call yourself a comedian. You're not a comedian. It'll take you 10 years just to get your timing down. I don't want you to say comedian. So I said, well, I'm going to call myself a storyteller. He said, beautiful. So I tell people I'm a storyteller, and I'm finding that I really enjoy getting up in front of crowds. Uh, it could be 100 people. 125 people that come to my presentation, and I really like it, and I'm, I'm developing relationships with them. Uh, I always shake everybody's hand at the end of the presentation, so there's a personal touch. Uh, I always listen to their comments, and occasionally I'll shoot out a joke. I, you know, I told Pat, I said, well, should I tell a joke? He said, if it feels right, just do it. You know, a comedian's like a prize fighter. Mm -hmm. If you think too much, you're going to wind up on, on um, knocked out. If you feel it's right, throw it. 
And, you know, I find I'm getting laughs. So uh, I never thought of myself going in this direction because now I've become the performer. Uh, I like it. I'm having a good time. And the audience is responding. Well, that's terrific. All right. In a moment, uh, we'll hear more from Elliot Gordon and some of the comics that he's known and work with. And you'll get to hear from them as well, even if they're no longer with us. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. By the way, we'll take a couple of your calls as well if you want to call in 800-848-9222. That's 800 800- Four eight ninety two twenty two. 22 Elliot Gordon, my guest for the hour. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Talk a little bit about comedy, the Catskills, and more with Elliot Gordon. We'll take some of your calls as well, 800-848-9222. Now, Elliot, uh, I know you're a, a proud Jew, but uh, Gentiles can make headway in the world of comedy as well, right? Oh, are you kidding? The the best in the business. You got guys like Bob Newhart and people like that are talking about giants, without question of doubt. You know, uh, Pat Cooper told me, he said, Elliot, uh, thinks with the with the history of the Jewish people, that comedy was kind of a, a mechanism to uh, to deal with the tragedies throughout the centuries. And he said he thought that that's why they became such great comedians. Interesting. Oh, yeah. that is interesting. It, it makes sense. I know you're, you're also very vocal in terms of uh, advocacy and support for Israel, right? Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Sure, sure. Uh, I don't know any Israeli comedians that uh, that I'm a big fan of, but uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I've been to Israel many times, and you know, speaking of uh, Israel, there was a guy named Alan King, mm. and uh, he would raise a lot of money and go on trips many, many years ago to Israel. And uh, you know, concerning uh, Alan King, uh, I my my mentor was a man named Sid Bernstein, the great music promoter of the 1960s, Beatles at Shea Stadium, Cousin Bruce. He managed Cousin Bruce. Really. Uh, Oh, yeah. And uh, Sid did all those great shows. And I once asked him, I said, Sid, did you ever do a show with Alan? And uh, he said, Al, I know Alan very well. And yes, I did. It was 1980. It was a fundraiser that Frank Sinatra was doing for Governor Hugh Carey, who was running for re-election for governor in New York. And uh, we sold out Madison Square Garden. And he said, Sinatra brought me in as the producer, Alan Comedian, Sinatra Headliner. And I think Carol Channing was there as well. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, um, you Carey's plane was running a little bit late. He said, they got a call from one of his aides that coming out of Albany, they're about 10 minutes late. So they'll be at Madison Square Garden about 10 minutes late. He said, so I told Alan, you're going to have to stretch because we're running a little bit behind. Now, Frank Sinatra was very meticulous. Mm. He said, Al, we're doing it. We're a couple of minutes late because Alan's doing the extra few minutes to wait for the governor. And Jilly, who was a dear friend, sure. everybody knew Jilly. We all loved Jilly. He was a dear friend of mine. Uh, he said, Jilly comes over to him and said, Sid, 
uh, the boss is getting a little bit hot back there. Maybe you better go back and talk to him, meaning Sinatra. So Sid said, Ell, I walked back, and Sinatra is looking at me, tapping his watch. We were like about four minutes late. He's tapping his watch. What's going on? And uh, he told, he said, I told him, Governor's plane running a little bit late. We told Alan to stretch, and Sinatra said, fine. So we're just killing a little time, and Sid was a man of girth. He loved his pizza. He loved his French fries. He loved his pastrami. He said, so Sinatra tells me, uh, Jilly tells me that you're an expert on pizza. Sid, what is the best pizza joint in New York? And Sid told me, he said, El, for some reason— I had a flashback of 25 years earlier when I was at a restaurant called Della Veneri's in the Bronx at about one in the morning. And I walk in and I remember looking at the back table, nobody in the restaurant, one couple. It was Frank Sinatra and Ava Gardner. He said, it just came to me. Wow. He said, so I look at him and I said, Mr. Sinatra, there was a place in the Bronx called Della Veneri's. And he said, he just looks at me and he said, Sid, you got me right in the Labanza. He said, that is the best place. But anyway, that night, Alan King had opened the show and I think Alan was one of the funniest men of all time. Uh, I certainly agree. And one of the things that I don't know that Alan King uh, gets uh, an adequate amount of credit for is he was really a terrific actor. I mean, if you look at his performance in the film Casino alone, which is a non-comedic role, too, he's outstanding. I mean, I, I mean that doesn't always translate, right, to have great comedians be great actors? You know, that's a good uh, point, Frank. And actually, I'm going to disagree with you. It seems that uh, comedians make good hmm. dramatic actors. Rickles, I think, was also in Casino. That's right. Uh, and uh, he did something years ago with Clark Gable on a movie. I think it was called Run Silent, Run Deep. And um, uh, so Pat was not a bad actor. The problem he had was he cracked everybody up. Right. So when he was working with De Niro, uh, there was a movie where there was a hospital scene, and every time De Niro looked at him, he started laughing, and they had to stop the scene because <laughs> it was an emergency room. So Pat was, was, the problem was he was too funny. But some of those guys make pretty good actors. No, no doubt about it. All right. For uh, people that uh, may not remember Alan King or just want to hear him again, here's a bit of uh, Alan King talking about a subject that gets a lot of attention these days. The genders. About 16 years ago, I stood on this stage with about the same amount of business. There was always empty in the front when I worked there. And I was doing my wife jokes at the time. This is long before women's lib and the ERA. And while I was doing jokes, I did a joke one night. I said, women live longer than men. And I said, the reason for it is that they're not married to women. Now, it was not a big joke then. Just, just a part of a story. A woman stood up right about where you are, dear, who was a member of the State Assembly of, the, of Nevada, and this is absolutely true. She started to berate me about me being a male chauvinist pig, and there is no record, there are no recordings, no history, no about women living longer than men. Now, I haven't done this in a long time, and I dug out some of the obituaries that I'd like to do for you now, just to prove this point. Nothing has changed. Good evening. Can we, would you turn around so we can get to a camera? I put my glasses on. When I did this bit 15 years ago, I didn't need the glasses. But 
this is an obituary. Would you examine it? It's a Xerox copy of an obituary. New York Post, is that correct? That's Nothing correct. I made up. There are seven obituaries. Now, would you just read, without getting personal mentioning the names, what does this say at the bottom of the first obituary? He is survived by his Survived wife. by his wife. Could you read the second obituary over here? What does it say there, dear? He is survived. Survived by his wife. Could you read the third obituary? What does it say? He leaves. He leaves his wife. See, they change it around so you won't get bored. And this one is, he is survived by his wife. What does this one over here say, dear? He is survived. Survived by his wife. And what does this one say here? He's survived by, and what is, you know, and well, without survived by his wife. Yeah, I want you to have that seven out of seven. <laughs> Uh, it's still it's still very funny. He has a, a timing that is absolutely, absolutely timeless. Now, you alluded you alluded to the charity work that Alan King did. He wasn't just involved in uh, Jewish causes. He raised money for for hospitals, for children, for everybody. Right. He was a very, very good guy, very, very diversified. And he's quite a businessman. People, a lot of people don't know that he was a partner with a gentleman named Walter Hyman to finance Barbara Streisand's first national tour in 1964. So, oh, Al, yeah, I had no I, idea. Oh, yeah. Alan got involved in many, many different areas. In fact, I remember when I booked him on a television show that I was producing at the time called Leon Charney Report, drives into the uh, parking lot with his Rolls Royce, which he was very, very proud mm. of. And uh, just, uh, just an overall good guy. But, you know, it's interesting, Frank, uh, you had mentioned uh, uh, Israel. Um, uh, Two weeks ago, I'm doing a presentation at a beautiful place out in Long Island. And uh, one of the audience members after the show uh, comes over to me and she says, El, did you ever hear of a man named Lee Salters? I said, well, I know the name. He was one of the biggest public relations men in the business. He was handling uh, Michael Jackson, Barbara Streisand, Frank Sinatra. I said, I had knew uh, the man who taught him the business, Eddie Jaffe. That's, that's how I knew the name. She said, well, she was dating him for many, many years. And uh, he had told her a beautiful story. She said when Frank Sinatra was hired by Anwar Sadat, President Sadat of Egypt, to do a concert at the Pyramids in around 1979, 1980, they did the show. And then they went to Israel to vacation for a couple of days. And uh, his wife went to a shoe store on a place called Dizengoff, which is like their Fifth Avenue, expensive shops. And uh, she had told him that she was shopping. It was Friday afternoon near the Sabbath. And the guy really pushed to keep the store open to the last second just to make the sale. Uh, and uh, when Sinatra heard it, he was very, very upset that it's not a right thing to do to somebody. Why couldn't you go back on Sunday? And he asked her, did you buy anything? And she said, no, she really didn't care for any of the items. He called the guy on Sunday. He said, uh, whatever shoes my wife tried on, I'll take them. Send me the bill. Wow. And I just thought that was very sensitive and very, very decent of him to do something like that. And no doubt about it. And uh, Alan King was a big tennis player, right? Oh, absolutely. And uh, just, uh, I mean, just a terrific guy. I had invited him uh, on one of the television programs I was producing, and he was bringing, he said, can I bring down pickles? I'm partners in a pickle company. I said, bring down a pizza, bring down whatever you want. <laughs> just show up, Alan, bring down you. <laughs> and he was a very, very diversified. And Buddy Hackett, Buddy Hackett was another guy. Uh, he was in a show called the music man the movie oh sure i think that's and, where a, a lot of folks still know him from to this day and robert preston well uh, jilly who we mentioned earlier J jilly uh, frank sinatra's uh, bodyguard or his friend had owned the bar bistro on west 52nd street and 8th avenue in the city and they always had great piano players i knew one of the guy was one of the guys his name was bobby cole 
And Bobby, I had met many years later, he said, Ellie, he said, I was the piano player at Jilly's in the 60s when it got so hot. I said, well, any special memory? He said, yeah. He said, El, we're right in the theater district. And he said, when I would do a hit song from Music Man, which was playing in the theater district called uh, um, uh, River City, we sure. got trouble. Okay, trouble you know, River so, City. Sure. Right, that's it. He said, for some reason, I would close my eyes, but I would always do it. He said, so now I close my eyes and I'm playing River City. Music Man's playing across the street. I don't know Robert Preston just walked in the place. My <laughs> eyes are closed. And he said, I feel some guy sit at the piano bench next to me and start singing with me. He said, I figured some drunk got up from the audience. He said, I open up my eyes and I'm doing a duet with Robert Preston for that song. Oh, that's he said it was wild, but Buddy Hackett was in the film uh, music man, he did pretty good. He did great. Uh, we're going to talk about Buddy Hackett uh, in in just a little bit. Now, did you know Alan for? I guess you knew him going back to the early eighties, then, right? Uh yeah, I know. I knew Alan in the uh, late nineties. Late nineties, yeah, so until what, yeah. the end of his life. That's right. I, I had always heard, and he uh, joked around about this a little bit in his act that he was a big cigar smoker. Yeah. Yeah, and that did he, do you know because I enjoy an occasional cigar myself, do you know if he inhaled the cigars because uh, or did he did do the standard cigar thing where he didn't inhale? Do you have any idea of his cigar specific smoking habits? I don't know. I mean, to me it was like a George Burns that gotcha. cigar okay. was part of him. All right. All right. We're going to talk about Buddy Hackett and uh Freddie Roman and uh, we'll get uh, Elliot to share some other stories in in a bit. Gene in the Bronx has been patiently holding gene you're on with uh, elliot gordon uh nice to meet you mr gordon uh my name is uh gene gene perlman from the bronx my older brother was a stand-up comic his name was mickey marvin and he played the bush belt many a time and the party that really got him into the business his name was corbett monica i love corbett and, monica yeah and he got him into the business and surprisingly you know, he just graduated high school, never went to college, but I seen him sometimes at the show and I don't know, he did he did very, very well. Unfortunately, later in life his wife passed away. Once his wife passed away, he lost it. He just couldn't do anything. He looked great though. He had all his hair, everything. He lost his mind. Once she passed away, he couldn't he couldn't act he couldn't everything just went away, disappeared totally. But he, he did very well financially, and he used to talk about the Bush Belt all the time to me. And he used to hear a lot of funny things. And uh, that's the way it goes. But I thought I'd just, I don't know if anybody recognizes his name today. I don't know if anybody recognizes But he did very well, I think. And I, I think he used to go to Jilly's. I think Frank Sinatra was up there, and he also paid the... Uh, Oh, what did he play this? Uh, the Culver Cabana. He, he, All he right, Gene. The Cabana. Thank you. I, pre- I appreciate the remembrance there, Gene. Now, the I know Jilly had a bar, but I always thought it was called Jilly's. Yes. Did he have? Uh, but there was Bistro, or or well, it, what, it was it was a Bistro in the sense I think Bistro was because they had a trio there, and that gave it the term Bistro. Sinatra used but, but to run the same spot. Though. Oh, it was the same okay, spot. Gotcha. Sinatra used to say, "My favorite Bistro." Gotcha, gotcha. 800-848-9222. John is on Long Island. Hello, John. Hey, how you doing there, Frank? First time caller. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for calling. Thanks for listening. Yeah, listen, this is great. The comedy, it's, it's really good. Uh, happened to 98, met uh, Lou Bacala Carey, my uncle. I don't know if he knew him or whatever. And 
you touched on 10 years earlier. I, he told me it really takes about 10 years to come into its own. I was surprised. I figured it's great. Great comedy, you're probably two or three years and takes a lot more, a lot more seasoning, I guess. Yeah, I mean, any 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 thought on that, uh, Elliot? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just a comment that Pat made to me. He said that if you really have the basis to become a comedian, it'll take you 10 years to get down your timing. And those guys, you know, their attitude is, hey, once you get up on that stage, you really got to be sharp. You really got to be a pro. I mean, Jackie Mason, uh, in preparation for his Broadway shows, uh, he would go into comedy workshops and advertise them as workshops, mm. that this is not a finished product. Uh, one night he called me uh, from Chicago and he said, I'm going into a club called Zanies. He said, El, I'm 80 years old. I did five Broadway shows. I got an Emmy. Why am I in Zanies in Chicago? <laughs> but he said, at the end of the day, the reason is because it's the right way to do it. You've got to work it out. You've got to let these people know this is not a finished product. So when you put out a finished product, they trust you. Thank you, John. All right, we're going to continue with Elliot Gordon in a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The night is long, the skies are clear, and if you want to go walking, dear, it's delightful, it's delicious, it's the lovely. I understand the reason why you're sentimental, cause so am I. It's delightful, it's delicious, it's the lovely. You can tell at a glance, <laughs> what a swell night this is for romance. You can hear Mother Nature murmuring low. Let yourself go. So please Frank Sinatra, accompanied by the great Milton Berle in that clip. Oh, Milton Berle, obviously uh, not a singer, but uh, as far as comics go, Mr. Television, Uncle Milty, whatever you want to call him, nobody, nobody better, nobody with a more storied career in comedy. This week would have been his birthday, actually, uh, Milton Berle. We spoke about him a little bit the last time that you were that you were here. Uh, he really was. Uh, an entity unto himself, right? Without a doubt, and uh, he certainly was uh, a legend. I mean, Mr. Television, and I really think he kept the Friars Club together for many years, which was uh, that New York uh, theatrical uh, fraternity for all the comedians. Uh, and then later on, Freddie Roman took it over. He actually bought a, the building and donated it to the Friars Club that they're still in today. That's what I heard, Frank. Yeah, it's and, really uh, you know, and then I remember years later, uh, the man who sponsored me to go into the club, Freddie Roman, he became the dean. And Freddie started uh, by owning uh, shoe stores. You're kidding. Yeah, I said, you went from shoe business to show business. I said, how did you do that? <laughs> and, uh, you know, then he uh, he was actually the dean of the Friars Club for many, many years. Yeah, Freddie Roman, another one, a uh, great one that we lost just, uh, just last November, uh, really uh, one of a what was it that made I, I didn't know about that genesis of his career in the shoe business. What was it that made Freddie Roman so uh, unique as a comic? Well, he did develop his own style. And I really think he flourished with the Broadway show that he produced Catskills on Broadway. 
Uh, and he told me, he said, El, when we saw how successful Jackie Mason was in 1985, I mean, Jack went into the Broadhurst Theater, that's an 1800-seater, uh, six shows a week, sold every ticket to every show for three and a quarter years until he decided he needed a hiatus. He said, so when I saw that, when Jack was away, I decided I'm going after that market. And he got Malzi Lawrence, Marilyn Michaels, Dick Capri. He said, I figured I'd put a troupe together. Uh, and they went into a small theater, the Helen Hayes, a 500-seater. And they did a year. They're pretty funny. And then they just kept doing it for the next 20 years off Broadway. No, it was uh, a terrific show that I was uh, lucky enough to see. All right. Uh, Freddie Roman at the Just for Laughs Festival. This is such such a strange world, my friends. It really is. So many weird things happened. For example, eight weeks ago, I flew home from L.A. to New York on the all-night flight. And I got to my little town of New City, New York at six o'clock in the morning. I didn't have a key. I knocked on the door. My wife said, who is it? I said, it's your husband. I'm home. She said, I won't open this door till you tell me something that only my husband would know. I said, all right, we have two children. Alan is 36. Fifteen years ago, he graduated from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Judy's 33. She graduated from Brandeis University, Boston University Law School. And they are bright, adorable, terrific, delicious, gorgeous, wonderful, exciting kids. She said, the whole neighborhood knows that. <laughs> I said, we have a little dog named Peppy, 18 years old, just qualified for Meals on Wheels. <laughs> she said, the whole neighborhood knows that. I said, you have a mole on your ass. If the neighborhood knows that, don't bother to open the door. <laughs> the Freddie Roman, a lot of people don't know, but the Friars Club actually changed their rules to do away with uh, term limits for the office that he had. I think it was the, the dean or uh, Grand Abbot, whatever it was, to allow him to continue to serve as the head. And it's easy to see why. I mean, you talk about a gifted entertainer with incredible timing. That's Freddie Roman. Absolutely. And all of those guys. I mean, there was uh, another guy, Stewie Stone, who was there all the time, and we lost him not long ago. But uh, that, that whole era, you're talking about Groucho, you're talking about uh, uh, Steve Allen, Johnny Carson, uh, Frank, they haven't been replaced. You know, uh, Johnny Carson, he was more than a late night talk show host. He was our friend. He would come into our room at night, 1130, 12 o'clock. It was just nice having him there. Uh, and that kind of like a chip on the shoulder attitude. It worked with him because we liked him so much. And and these other guys, you know, Robert Klein, uh, he wrote 25 HBO specials. Robert, very, very talented guy, good writer. And uh, who knows how many movies uh, Mel Brooks and Woody Allen did. So you're talking about one magical name after the other. I saw a list today on uh, one of the uh, websites, and they were talking about legendary comedians. Mm. Like they ran off five names, and I think now they look at Jerry Seinfeld as the old man of the group. Uh, and they talk about guys like Richard Pryor being a trailblazer. And then don't mention any of the other guys you and I speak about. Uh, I mean, well, if uh, I'm not Richard Pryor was a funny guy, but if Richard Pryor was a trailblazer, then Mel Brooks was a nine alarm fire. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, and all these other brilliant minds of comedies and the Woody Allen. So there's so much wealth there. And what I'm just doing now, and I think I'm just the right man at the right time. Pat told me, he said, El, you're old enough and you're young enough. You were, you're old enough to have been with us when you were a kid and witness us and hear our stories, and you're young enough to still get it out there. Don't let it die. So I, I just tell 
people. You don't need your medications anymore. You need Milton Berle. <laughs> I, I, I think that's uh, I think that's uh, such a refreshing thing. And as far as what you said about uh, Johnny Carson and Steve Allen and Jack Parr and that era in comedy and in television not being replaced, I think you're so right about that. And one of the things because they still show. The Johnny Carson um, edition of The Tonight Show on this network called Antenna TV uh, every night. It's on every night, and I think it holds up, and it's great. But one of the things that I don't know that I had a full appreciation of 30 years ago, but I've developed an appreciation of now watching what's on is – in addition to the monologue being just very funny and in addition to them featuring very funny comics – there were great conversations. I mean, not everybody can do that, be a great monologuist and provide a great forum for the best comics in the world and then have genuinely interesting conversations, which are both substantive and and comical. Now, I mean, not now because there's a writer's strike, but uh, these days when you watch one of those late night comedy shows, they invite on the biggest stars in the world and they have them sort of play games. That's all. That's the entirety of the discussion is play a word game or or. Uh, or musical, uh, you know, or uh, impression karaoke or something along those lines. And I do wonder why things went in that direction. And uh, and if a show uh, that followed a Carson-esque format would still do as well today. Well, you know, uh, I agree with you. And they did a special on the Johnny Carson show with the younger guys talking about being on that show. And I think Jerry Seinfeld put it best. He said, we all wondered what would happen to The Tonight Show uh, when Johnny Carson left, and we found out he took it with him. <laughs> and that's really the truth. Uh, you know, Tommy Dreesen, both of our friends, and Tommy, uh, 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 who had spent 14 years as the opening comedian for Frank Sinatra and worked for many other stars, uh, and he did 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. He told me, he said, oh, when the first time I did it, uh, was so key because not only did it have an enormous viewing audience, they were talking about maybe 30 million people watching him every night, but all the bookers and the promoters and the agents, they wanted to know who Johnny thought was funny to bring on to get work for the new names. Uh, and he said, Tommy got lucky. He said, I got a hot four or five minutes. And then when I walked behind the curtain leaving, they said, get back in front of the curtain. He said, you want me to sit down by the couch? They said, no, don't sit down by the couch. Just walk in front of the curtain. And Johnny got up and gave him the okay sign. The camera caught it. The next day, the calls came wow. in. If Johnny thought you were good, we want you. Uh, speaking of uh, Pat Cooper, Pat used to tell a story. I'm sure you've heard it a thousand times. I've heard it a hundred times that when he was performing on the same bill as Frank Sinatra, yeah. Frank Sinatra uh, w- tried to give him some feedback on what kind of jokes to tell. Yeah. And Pat responded angrily. And this is in his book as well. I'm not yeah. telling any tales out of school by saying, Frank, you know, I don't tell you what songs to sing. Don't tell me what jokes to tell. I- I'm trying to think I must have asked Tom Dreesen this over the years, but did, uh, to the best of your knowledge, did Sinatra ever give Dreesen feedback on his act since Dreesen was his opening act? Yeah, I, uh, Tommy and I are very close. We spoke the other day, uh, and uh, the answer to that is uh, yes, but only once. Uh, and I asked him, what advice did he give to you? And he said, "L, he told me, have a good time up there. He said, when you're having a good time, it's contagious. The audience has a good time with you and also be powerful uh, that Sinatra said most entertainers will say reach out and touch the audience. He said, I never thought that way. I thought 
reach out, grab them, pull them out of mm. their seat, shake them up, throw them back in the seat. Because the, the, the test of being a star is when you leave the stage and that air is charged with excitement. So those were the only two pieces of advice he ever gave him. You alluded to uh, Buddy Hackett, who, again, a lot of younger listeners may remember mostly from the music man with that great line, which prompts that song where he observes that uh, River City ain't in any trouble. And, of course, they found out that that it very much is. Here is a bit of a Dean Martin and Buddy Hackett collaboration. And they're talking about one of everybody's favorite subjects. Marriage and food. You have children. How many? I got three. Three? They went like this. No, you got three, haven't you? I had What's their name? Uh, Oh, you don't know hard questions. (laughs) (laughs) There's uh, Sandy. He's the oldest. And then there's Ivy. And then there's Lisa. You know that when uh, Sherry was expecting Sandy, you know? Mm -hmm. She didn't tell me that she was expecting a baby. Did Jeannie tell you when she was expecting a baby? Oh, yeah. I could see. Oh, yeah, I could see, too, but the way I eat, I figure she takes up my patterns, that's all. <laughs> we both were eating the same thing. Then she went to the hospital and got skinny, and I'm walking around like this. Right? What, what do you mean, that did she tell me? Didn't she tell you she was having a baby? No! How I find out in the middle of the night, she woke me up and she sent me for pizza pie. So that's how I found out. She sent you for a pizza pie? Yeah, and it was snowing. Now, here's what happened. I'm sleeping, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm sleeping... And in my sleep, I'm dreaming I'm sleeping. You know? That's a swell thing, you know? Like I'm enjoying two sleeps. You get two for one, you know? Oh, yeah. You're sleeping inside of your sleep. Yeah, in my sleep, I'm dreaming. So then I hear that, Bud! Bud! I said, what? She says, are you sleeping? I said, no, I'm weaving a Navajo rug. So she says, I guess, you know what I would like? I say, what is it, old princess of denial? kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. So she says, I like to have a pizza pie. I said, oh, yeah, look in a drawer with my shirt. If there's one there, grab it. <laughs> we'll continue with these two in a second. But Dean Martin obviously was a terrific singer, but he had that legendary partnership with Jerry Lewis, who, of course, was a comic, and had no problem sharing the stage with, with other comics. Uh, Buddy Hackett in the clip that we just played, uh, but also people like Joey Bishop. That's also something that you really don't see much of these days, where people who are superstar actors and singers do sort of these live stage shows with people, with entertainers that are masters of another discipline. Absolutely. Why, why did that go away? Well, absolutely, Frank. You know, one night Jackie and I, Jackie Mason and I are in a coffee shop talking about funniest acts ever, biggest laughs, and he's talking about different comedians. And I said, well, I think it was the comedy team of Dean and Jerry. And he said, you're right, you're right. He said, in the 40s, I saw him at the Paramount. There was madness in Times Square to see these guys. And he said, El, he said, I did the Dean Martin roast, the celebrity roast. And he said, I always felt that Dean could keep up with all of us. Mm. He was so sharp. And Pat Cooper told me, he said, El, he said, as far as I was concerned, uh, Dean Martin was Cary Grant with a song. He was elegant. He was classy. He was funny. He'd make fun of himself. He just had it all. The question is, where are those people now? Good question. You know, uh, maybe it's ego. Maybe people can't get together because, you know, when you're a team, you got to share it with each other. At that time, Jerry Lewis very much overshadowed Dean Martin. And then later on, we found out how great Dean Martin was. Absolutely. Here's a little bit more of uh, Dean Martin and Buddy Hackett. 
So she says, if you really loved me, it was snowing outside. She says, if you really loved me, you'd go out in the snow and come back with a pizza pie. I said, that's right. <laughs> now she says, are you going? I throw off the covers. I says, look at my feet. Are they moving? <laughs> a peculiar thing with me. A peculiar thing is yeah. you can do this at rehearsal. That's no. peculiar. Go ahead. Well, a peculiar thing with me is that if my feet ain't moving, it's a good bet that my body ain't going no place. <laughs> so she says, I'm going home to my mother. I said, on the way, pick yourself up a pizza pie. <laughs> your mother a five-pound box of candy. My mother-in-law's diabetic. Uh, by the way, if uh, people are hearing your discussion, hearing the stories about a lot of these great entertainers, along with a couple of the clips, and they'd love to see you do this show somewhere, how can they either find out where you're doing it in the future or maybe book you to get you to do it somewhere? Sure, sure. very simple. Right now, uh, my website is under construction, so simply call me, 646 675 one eight eight four six four six six seven five one eight eight four and in September I will be at Stand Up New York here in Manhattan uh, and in November sixth I'm booked into the Safra Community Center here in Manhattan and after that I got bookings really all over the metropolitan area just give me a call and we'll talk you know the Stand Up New York thing uh, anybody can go to that right? absolutely so uh, that should be it should be really interesting it's so interesting to me though that uh, a lot of comedy clubs especially one is legendary stand-up New York, which could book uh, comics from everywhere, they're choosing to book you to showcase a lot of comics that aren't even alive anymore. Right. What happened, Frank, uh, I was uh, doing a co-bill uh, with uh, our buddy Curtis Sliwa in April at a hotel in Connecticut, and uh, Curtis did half an hour talking about things he spoke about. I did this for half an hour, and when I left, a woman comes running out. She said, I love this. This is hysterical. I want you to talk to my son, and her son son is the guy, uh, Donnie Zolden, who, um, who owns that club. And when I spoke to him, I said, I want to come into this club and I want to challenge your comedians with their type of comedy that they're doing now, uh, which is a lot different. And I want to say, hey, I could bring these guys in on video and a couple of anecdotes and get bigger laughs with them on video than you guys are getting with your off-color material. I want to give you the ice bucket challenge. And he said, you're on. Let's do it in September. The, that's going to be, that's going to be wild. So people could contact Stand Up New York if they want to get uh, tickets for that. It, I've noticed with radio personalities that I've observed, some are very much the same when they're behind the microphone and when they're off air. Others, there's a very stark contrast between their on-air persona and their their uh, off-air persona. Some people are very effervescent and energetic and uh, very personable on air, and then off-air they're almost shy and reclusive. When it comes to the comics that that you worked with, who would you say was the same on stage and off, and who would you say was the kind of the biggest difference between their on stage persona and their off stage persona? Easy. Pat Cooper was Pat Cooper all the time. <laughs> I mean, he could just be sitting in the corner breathing, and you know that was Pat Cooper. There was an aura there. Uh, and Jackie, the opposite. Jack would be very, very quiet when I was with him, uh, introverted uh, type of thinker, and his comedy wasn't funny at a taste. 
table. When Jack did it in front of a big audience, hysterical, but at a table, it really didn't work. So people would sometimes be a little bit disappointed. We'd say we expected that onstage character. So uh, Jackie, much more reserved. Pat. Cooper, same, 24 hours a day. Yeah, that uh, that would have been my guess as to, to who you picked. All right. Elliot Gordon is here. It's uh, a real treat to be able to have you, uh, especially I know a lot of our new listeners on WVOS in the Catskills are curious to hear about the etymology of the term borscht belt and kind of where borscht belt humor fa- uh, fits in in the in the history of uh, in the history of comedy cousin brucey actually told me last week that they're launching a catskills museum uh, of or something along those lines where they're featuring a lot of the great entertainers from the Catskills. Obviously, he's so associated with the film Dirty Dancing, and uh, that's a big part of capturing that whole era of Catskills 1950s. Well, a friend of mine uh, had uh, uh, told me about that, so I'm going to be in touch with them because I think there's a lot of common ground between what I'm doing and what they're doing. And, uh, and hey, you know, uh, Cousin Bruce is a buddy. Maybe I'll give him a call to yeah, find out. Yeah, I'm sure he'd be happy to hear from you. Elliot, it is always a treat to have you in studio. Thank you so much. Thank you, Frank. This has been a thrill for me. And I always enjoy being here talking to you. Uh, The pleasure is all mine. All right. After the top of the hour, we will uh, do denunciations. We will take your calls. And I will tell you about Congressman Tim Burkett, Republican of Tennessee, who says that these UFOs are real and we we should really probably do something about them. He's got some ideas as to what I'll play it for you and you can judge for yourself. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's 800-848-9222. In the words of the great Bob Barker, a living legend in his own right, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. In the immortal words of another Frank, Frank Costanza, I've got a lot of problems with you people, and now you're going to hear about them. Uh, There are several people that need to be denounced, and I am here to denounce them, as we do every week at this time, as part of... The Other Side of Midnight presents... Denunciation. I must begin by denouncing Francesca, Francesca Gino. Over the past two decades, dozens of behavioral scientists have risen to prominence, pointing out the power of small interventions to improve well-being. The t- scientists said they had found that automatically enrolling people in organ donor programs would lead to higher rates of donation. Now, you know of my interest in organ donation and you know why and you know how much i promoted it on that show 
And they also said that moving healthy foods like fruit closer to the front of a buffet line would result in healthier eating. Many of these findings attracted skepticism as other scholars showed that their effects were smaller than initially claimed or had little impact at all. But in recent days, the field may have sustained its most serious blow yet. Accusations that a prominent behavioral scientist fabricated results in multiple studies, including at least one purporting to show how to elicit honest behavior. That scholar, Francesca Gino of Harvard Business School. She has been a co-author of dozens of papers in peer-reviewed journals on such topics as how rituals like silently counting to 10 before deciding what to eat can increase the likelihood of choosing healthier food and how networking can make professionals feel dirty. It looks like she, this woman who wrote this blockbuster study that was published in serious academic journals all about honest behavior, looks like she was dishonest about it. Francesca Gino, it looks like, is just a giant fraud. And Harvard is retracting a whole bunch of her papers that she has published. So we hear about this all the time, and it just makes me wonder, how prevalent is this fraud within the academic community of people making up data for the credibility, the money, the acclaim that comes with being published. I have a feeling that it's far more prevalent than most of us realize. And because this is happening way too often, I want to denounce the FBI, not for any of the things that Christopher Ray was testifying about this week, but for their crime data. Statistics from more than... I want you to listen to what I'm about to say, because these are real numbers that I'm about to give you. Pay attention. Pay close attention. This is not a drill. Statistics from more than 6,000 law enforcement agencies were missing from the FBI's national crime data last year representing nearly one-third of the nation's 18,000 police agencies. That means a quarter of the U.S. population wasn't represented in the federal crime data last year. That's according to an analysis from the Marshall Project. The missing data doesn't just hamper the ability of policymakers to address public safety. It fosters confusion and uncertainty. So when you look at the FBI national crime data, you want to know what's missing Florida's missing. New York is missing. And more. This is uh, totally egregious. For more than 100 years, the FBI has been collecting crime data from local police departments through uh, across the country through the Uniform Crime Reporting Program, which has been considered the gold standard of national crime statistics. By 2020, almost every law enforcement agency was included in the database. Then it all changed in 2021. In an effort to fully modernize the system, the FBI stopped taking data from the old summary system and only accepted data through the new system. And thousands, 6,000 or so, thousands of police agencies fell through the cracks because they didn't catch up with the changes on time. So that's the solution that the FBI has? 
that if you're not on board with our new way of reporting, we're just not going to count it? This is insane. This is crazy. And I really think the value of the data from the national crime statistics last year is of very little value because so much of the country is excluded. I want to denounce John Russell, former Horseman of the Year. He was recently inducted into the Carolina's Show Hunter Hall of Fame. I am doubly denouncing him because he killed a horse. He just didn't kill a horse, though. He shot a horse while trying to shoot his son at their North Carolina farm. The son was unarmed, and after he shot this poor horse, this poor innocent bystander horse, the horse was suffering and had to be put down. The son, thankfully, was unharmed. But uh, they are charging this lunatic with assault with a deadly weapon, among other crimes. This is crazy. This guy is sort of a legendary horse trainer and rider, and he's been training and riding for decades. I don't know what the son did to him, but for you to shoot your own son or try to shoot your own son, and he does not he doesn't have a weapon, I mean, there's no excuse for that in my book. I would never shoot my son. I would never try to shoot my son. And if I did try to shoot my son, I'd at least make sure there were no horses around. I want to denounce marijuana. Well, cannabis has once again been linked to mental illness. A major new study shows that people who abuse this drug, cannabis, are more likely to be diagnosed with depression and bipolar disorder. Now, um, people diagnosed with cannabis use disorder were almost twice as likely to be diagnosed later with clinical depression. You know, with more and more municipalities moving forward with legalizing recreation, uh, recreational marijuana, I, I think the the easy thing for a lot of people to do would be to view marijuana oh, as it's just like anything else. It's just like drinking. It's just like tobacco and the truth is, it's harmful, and it, it's becoming increasingly considered a harmless habit, easy and legal to buy in most places, socially acceptable and pleasurable, but is it really safe for you? Is it really safe for your teenage children? Only time and more research is going to tell, but this research from the Danish excuse me, the Danish Health Registry showing a significant increase in people suffering with bipolar disorder and depression who use marijuana, I think is very troubling. Now, again, they're not spelling out a cause here. There's a lot of theories as to possible causes. It's certainly possible the defenders of marijuana may say that, uh, well, if you're more likely to be depressed or suffer from bipolar disorder, you're more likely to be the kind of person that tries marijuana in the first place to alleviate those symptoms. That could be the case. I still find these very, uh, very troubling. And there's even some data showing that there's a potential link between using recreational marijuana and schizophrenia. So 
that is not a good situation. Not a good situation. Even though it's legal, it doesn't mean you should do it. So, marijuana, I do denounce you. I must also denounce Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. We spent a lot of time talking about the affirmative action decision by the Supreme Court last week. One of the things we didn't talk about was the dissent written by Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, in which she made a mathematically absurd claim about black newborns. In her dissenting opinion on that decision, she argued that diversity saves lives and that it was essential for marginalized communities. This is what she wrote. It saves lives. For marginalized communities in North Carolina, it is critically important that UNC and other area institutions produce highly educated professionals of color. Research shows that black physicians are more likely to accurately assess black patients' pain tolerance and treat them accordingly, she says, including, for example, prescribing them appropriate amounts of pain medication. For high-risk black newborns, having a black physician more than doubles the likelihood that that baby will live and not die. I couldn't believe it when I saw that. Now, let's put aside the fact that this is not a legal argument that she's making. This is what a policymaker would be saying. And it just goes to show you uh, what Eric Siegel has said repeatedly. The Supreme Court is not a court. It's justices are not judges. These are politicians in robes. These are policymakers. They shouldn't be, but that's what they are. So um, there is no evidence whatsoever that having a black physician for a black newborn doubles the likelihood that that baby will live and not die. That is a mathematically... Absurd claim. I mean, you don't need to research this to know that it's false, but if you just think about it, it's absolutely implausible and impossible. Imagine if 40% of black newborns died, thousands of dead infants every week. But even so, that's a 60% survival rate, which is mathematically impossible to double. You can't have a 120% survival rate. And the actual survival rate is over 99%. So I don't understand how she could have made such a basic mistake, which you don't have to know about the law or medicine to know is wrong. You just have to know a little bit about arithmetic. That, um, so it's just absurd. The, the footnote, the study that she claims claims this makes no such claim. It examines mortality rates in Florida newborns between 1992 and 2015 and shows a 0.13 to 0.2% improvement in survival rates for black newborns with black pediatricians. That is a statistically insignificant improvement for black obstetricians. So I think this is just crazy. They're parroting this mathematically absurd claim in order to justify a policy matter. I mean, it makes no sense. So Judge Jackson, 
I do denounce you. I must also denounce kills me to do it because I love these guys. The boys in blue and the women in blue. The United States Postal Service. I love the Postal Service. Uh, I I mean, really, they're just the greatest. But over 450 cremated bodies have been lost in the mail, according to a February report. More than 450 cremated bodies have been lost in the post office, including one dating back over eight years. So when a loved one dies and wishes to be cremated, their bodies turned to ashes at a local crematorium, and families are given their remains in neat little urns. Families often choose to make jewelry from their loved one's ashes so they can carry them forever. But to do so, the remains must be sent to a company across the country. And the only legal way to do that is to send them in a carefully marked package through the U.S. Postal Service by using its Priority Mail Express option. But apparently shipping human remains isn't always a successful endeavor. And they have lost 452 packages containing human ashes. And one of them was shipped back in February of 2015. And they're trying to find the ways to get the packages to their intended recipients. But you have to ask yourself, how did so many fail to reach their final uh, destination? This is, to me... Just an awful black eye on the post office and the postal service. So I don't know if some of this has to do with improper labeling, but this is way too many. If it happens once, twice, three times, it's one thing. But 450 times? Come on, no good. U.S. Postal Service, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the Moroskis. Joseph Moroski, a former field director for the Old Bridge Soccer League, and his wife Kathleen, they've been arrested for stealing $91,000 from a youth soccer club to pay for a Disney trip and other splurges. This couple who have since moved to Manalapan. They've been charged with theft of movable property, over $75,000. And uh, we'll see where this goes. But uh, to me, if you're going to steal money, which apparently they did over the course of years, if you're going to steal money for kids, for your own selfish purposes, I have no respect for that at all. So the Morowskis... I do denounce you, and I must denounce the city of Cleveland. Cleveland ranks for the fourth year in a row as the most stressful city, the most stressed city, excuse me, in the United States. The the people that, according to WalletHub, based on the metrics that they used, The people in Cleveland are more stressed out than Detroit, more stressed out than Baltimore, more than Birmingham, more than Philadelphia, more than Shreveport, more than Memphis, more than St. Louis. So maybe they just need more yoga in there or aromatherapy. But you guys in Cleveland, you're stressed out. And finally, I want to denounce the United Arab Emirates. You know, 
I try not to denounce countries like this too much because they do something every week that's worthy of denunciation. But this week is no exception. They are known. They're an oil rich nation, as we know. They're known for hosting a lot of wealthy individuals with huge cash reserves and a taste for exotic cars. Well, there was one TikTok creator who decided to poke fun at this and lampoon this in a TikTok video. So this man goes into a supercar dealership and he's wearing typical Emirati dress and he walks inside followed by assistants carrying a a pallet stacked with money. And as the man marches about, he's throwing wads of cash to employees to go buy coffee while demanding to buy the most expensive car in the showroom. I need more expensive, brother. I don't need this. My driver will drive something like this. And he mocks a Ferrari SF90 as too cheap at a price of basically $600,000. And the video is... A stunt. It's a stage stunt. Well, wouldn't you know it? They arrested this guy. They arrested this guy for creating this video. Now, I know they're not big into things like freedom of speech in the UAE. This is just a joke. Nobody was hurt by this. Nobody was harmed by this, including nobody in the government. But now the person that made this video is the subject of multiple charges, including broadcasting sensational propaganda and publishing content that does not comply with prevailing standards in Emirati society. They've also issued a summons for the owner of the dealership without listing any charges at this stage. Horrible. I read stories like this, and it just makes me so grateful to live in the United States of America. So, United Arab Emirates, I do denounce you. All right, comments, thoughts, questions on anyone that I've denounced, you're welcome to jump on board with a telephone call. We have eight open lines, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This was one of the birthday bumper music uh, selections from David in the Bronx, who had his birthday yesterday. And apparently he said his birthday just wasn't quite as happy as it should have been because none of his music selections got played. So we're trying to make it up to him today by playing some of his selections a day later. And we hope in spite of his 
lack of musical preference being heard by the masses. Hopefully it was still a fun birthday. Anyway, anyway. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we've covered. 800-848-9222. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, what is going on in the halls of Congress. It's uh, a very interesting situation involving the uh, Congressman Tim Burkett. Congressman Tim Burkett, basically, um, you know, he's been very involved. In, he's a Republican in Tennessee, very credible guy. He's been very involved in the UAP disclosure movement for some time. And he has claimed that publicly, that, and I'm trying to get him on the show, hopefully next week we'll get him on. He has claimed that the government has known about UFOs since 1897. And he says they can fly underwater and don't show a heat trail. And he explained that the alien technology he believes the government is aware of appears to defy physics as we know it. He was on News Nation with Adrian Bankert a couple of days ago. This is Congressman Tim Burkett. I'm curious what you make of this. Here he is analyzing some of the footage of UFOs. Well, it's out there. If you'll go on YouTube and watch Tic Tac video, it's just Google it. Tic Tac video. They've had a special on 60 Minutes. It's been covered in some of the major news outlets, um, mainly the pre- uh, the, uh, the printed medium, not so much the visual medium like your, yourselves. And, um, and it basically shows a craft that they are chasing uh, that our Navy pilots, these are the best in the world. And you can, it's audio and visual than video and um and you hear them saying you know these guys they're just laughing because they can't keep up with them and um and it looks like a little tic-tac candy okay um, so it's tic-tac not tic-tac just just to confirm no ma'am yeah okay. everybody always says hey yeah these young people say hey boomer it's not then yeah, i said yeah. no it's tic-tac like the candy and Look, Congressman Burkett is a member of the House Oversight Committee, and he's part of the investigation overseeing these UFO hearings. But look, when it comes to visual proof, a lot of the American public finds these videos, I don't understand it, unconvincing. But Congressman Burkett points out that these aren't just some Joe Schmo jabronis that have seen these objects in the sky. Some of the best pilots in the world have seen this. Well, I'm basing them off of those pilots' um, videos that you've seen, and there's multiple occasions of that. And I've talked to multiple pilots, and these are the best pilots in the world. And you have to realize, well, even though they have so-called whistleblower protection from the military intelligence, and again, military intelligence is a whole lot like congressional ethics. It just doesn't exist. But if you talk to some of the best pilots in the world and they tell you that they've seen these objects and then when they and when they do report it, they get interrogated for like up to eight hours and they get a blemish on their record. So I've talked to pilots who've literally said we've destroyed any evidence of these videos because we don't want to have to go through all that. We've seen it. We all talk about it. It's pretty common knowledge among some of the pilots um, in certain areas. We've had um, a actually 13 near-miss encounters. And to think that, you know, we've got a $50 million aircraft and some of the best pilots in the world who are risking their lives, why would they lie about it, right. honestly? Are, All they're the- going to do is catch hell from their superiors, and this is ridiculous. So 
he was on the Event Horizon podcast, and he speculated that extraterrestrial life forms could have technology that humanity can't handle. And he said, if they're out there, they're out there. And if they have this kind of technology, then they could turn us into a charcoal briquette. It, Kenneth, do we have that actual audio from the Event Horizon podcast? Or we're going to work on getting that. But this is a sitting member on the House Oversight Committee, which has held hearings about potential threats and unexplained UAPs. And essentially, he's saying we can't handle it during that podcast uh, discussion about the potential alien technology. We couldn't fight them off if we wanted to. That's why I don't think they're a real threat to us or they would have already been or they would have already been a threat. So I think that's a, a pretty interesting take. Now, what about the footage that is out there? that people are uh, demanding to be released. Why is it dangerous, ma'am? They won't even release the Kennedy files on President Kennedy's assassination. And and people have been, that's over 50 years. Anybody involved in that is dead. Ma'am, it is about power. It is about control. It is about the almighty dollar that they are trying to control. And that's all this is about. That's all this is about. Yep. Just release what? it. Let the, I, I'm not afraid of it. You go out at night and look at the stars and the light from those stars literally left there before the time of Christ. I'm with them. I uh, I do hope they uh, they release this footage. Anything that's out there that hasn't been released, whether it's related to the Kennedy documents or footage of UFOs that the government has that haven't released, release it. What are you keeping so secret? 800-848-9222 if you agree or disagree. He spoke uh, to News Nation about what people should expect with these UFO hearings. Can you give us just a little hint of what to expect with the hearings? I mean, are, do you have multiple people well, lined okay. up at this uh, yeah, point? Yeah, I mean, I'm, we're, yeah, it's going to be, I would hope, a half a dozen people. We're going to have some people that uh, I would hope from the scientific community. We're going to hopefully have some pilots. We're going to have to have some whistleblowers. Um, some others. But, you know, as soon as I announce that the Pentagon puts a squeeze on them, which we've already they've already started with some of our alleged witnesses. So we're going to keep it pretty close to the cuff. And then when we release it, it'll be public record to everybody because I'm not going to play the secret game. I think it's pretty interesting. Give me your thoughts. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Pearl River. Hello, Robert. Hey, Frank, how you doing? Uh, you know, in terms of uh, affirmative action, it's a very controversial subject. You know, Conchanti Brown Jackson, I believe, you know, in my opinion, she wholeheartedly benefited from affirmative action. She doesn't want to put it down. You know, so this is why she's going to give those answers. You're probably, and I don't want it to sound racist or anything, because I'm not. I love everybody. But you probably will never know her grades uh, or her LSAT score. Tucker Carlson and mentioned that they laughed at him. They wanted to fire him immediately for that. Um, and she is, uh, that's exactly what it is though. I mean, she just uh, benefited from it. She's well, not going to, I mean, but if it's there, it if it's there, why shouldn't she have benefited from it? I'm sure a lot of people have benefited from it. My problem is not yeah. the fact that she took advantage. If she did, I don't know that she did, but it, it, my problem is not that she took advantage of a program that she was legally entitled to get. My problem is that she's making up data and then using it as part of a rationale that's going to be quoted for possibly centuries in future court decisions when even a dissent is written by a supreme court justice and published it's cited forever and she is essentially creating a bogus fact that's going to be repeated over and over again 
800-848-9222. Larry is on Long Island. Hello, Larry. Frank, good morning. morning. Uh, I got to ask you a question. Um, first of all, I love your show. Thank you. I mean, yeah, no, it's just, you know, I, I go back to uh, Long John Nebel, Candy Jones, like Curtis has talked about. And the only other, the only other show I have ever called, I made two calls, one to Bob Grant and one to WFAN. The only other shows I've ever called was to you. You have sucked me in to your world. <laughs> Thank you. I I mean that completely. Now the question, and I and I mean this. I swear to I mean this. Um, your segment this tonight and for I mean, God knows how long now it's been going on. You can ask me anything. Has anybody ever suggested? that you need psychiatric or psychological help, like delusions of grandeur. I mean, it's, 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 Frank, it's, it's wrong. It's so wrong. I mean, just, you can ask me for one hour every week, anything. Other than that, if you see me on the street, don't look me in the eyes. I'm that important. (laughs) Well, uh, first of all, I mean, it's meant to be kind of fun and a way of getting a lot of different subjects in the course of an hour. You know, it's not meant to be sort of a, you know, an example of, uh, uh, of my egotism. It's, it's meant to be a way to cover a lot of ground that people are interested in that I might not otherwise get to. That's, that's all it is. But yeah, if you see me on the street, don't, don't look me in the eye. I will not, I swear to God, if I look, if I see you in the street, I will not look you in the eyes. I'm telling you right now, you are, you know, you have this separate, you have this separate, this this deprecating humor where you're not that smart. You are the sharpest person I've ever heard on the radio before. I swear to God. No, no, no. You are. Oh, please. Oh, Frank, you are, you are cute. And I'm telling you right now, I'm telling you right now, I'm not kidding. But this, this, this mental issue but I don't is very serious. Why do you think it's a mental issue? I mean, I, I fully admit that I may have any number of, of psychological hangups and mental issues. My wife probably has a lengthy list, as do all of my uh, ex-girlfriends. However, why do you think the Ask Frank Anything Hour is an example of some sort of psychosis? Simply put, Frank, nobody on this planet is that important where they present themselves and say to somebody, you can ask me anything but just for one hour a week. Well, it sounds like you're making the case for expanding it to a second hour. Uh, You know what? It could go to four hours. Frank, I'm telling you right now, I love your show. You're very bright. You're very intellectual. I mean, there there are times where I have to tell you, you talk about about things, and I, I don't even understand it. I am that 
I feel like I'm at the United Nations and my headphones aren't working. Well, I mean, that's how that's not exactly a ringing endorsement that I'm talking about things that you that are that are so, so above your head that you don't even understand them. That's the that's not exactly what I'm going for there, Larry. No, it's it's against me. It's against me. It's against my intellectual stupidity that there are times where you talk about things and I just don't understand it. That you are that smart. But where are you that important? That's the question I have. I've always wondered since I've been listening to you for the years now. When did you become this important? I don't understand when, why you think there's a degree of, of self-import there. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I, I'm, I follow. And this goes to show why you're not right about my, my super intelligence. Why do you think giving people the opportunity to ask questions about anything they want for an hour is is an indication that I'm more important than anybody else? That that sells it for itself. You can ask me anything for one hour, you peons, and never ask me any other questions well, during no, the week. No, Whether I Larry. see you on the street. Uh, all right, Larry, I got to get back to hanging around with my very smart people. Um, the idea is, you know, the rest of the show, a lot of times, I, I don't know, I kind of try to steer the the train in a kind of a topical direction. Whereas, you know, if I'm if you want to call with a question about lima beans during the Ask Frank Anything Hour, you can ask about lima beans. But it's a question that I might not necessarily going go to if I'm talking about Welfare reform. You, you see what I'm saying? I mean, uh, I don't think, uh, you know, I will fully admit that uh, I may have some psychological hangups. I think a lot of the people that are on the radio do. Fine. But I don't think the Ask Frank Anything hour is an example of that. Unless, unless I am off base. I mean, usually if you're the person that's insane, if you're the person that's falling off a bar stool and everyone else insists you're too drunk to drive, chances are they're right and you're wrong. So maybe I'm the one that's falling off the bar stool and too drunk to drive, but uh I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that's it's, right. I think I think it's so you're not so smart. I think it's just kind of fun and uh and if people don't find it fun, so be it. Hey, uh just on this uh, UFO issue 800-848-9222 if you want to comment lawrence jones from the uh, fox news channel talked about this with uh, retired navy pilot ryan graves this is what uh, lieutenant ryan graves had to say i know people want to joke about this but there have been credible claims about this i mean you have your own experience sir yeah, certainly I do. And even today, I'm still being contacted by pilots on a pretty regular basis who are seeing this consistently uh, during their flights over the United States, over the Pacific, over the Atlantic. Uh, so for aviators, this is a pretty much a present daily occurrence that they're witnessing. And I really do think that these conversations from reputable pilots like Ryan Graves and others is an indication that this is not a are the do these things exist? It's a question of. What are these things? I was talking about uh, Congressman Burkett on this Event Horizon podcast. Listen to what he said. They have this kind of technology. Then, I mean, I've said this before, they could turn us into a charcoal briquette. If they can travel light years or at the speeds that we've seen and the um, and defy 
physics as we know it, fly underwater, um, don't show a heat trail, things like that, then we are, um, uh, we are vastly, um, you know, we're out of our, we're out of our league. We couldn't handle it. We, we couldn't, we couldn't fight them off what we wanted to. That's why I don't think that they're a threat to us or they would already have been. Yeah. I really do think he's probably right. At least I hope he is. 800-848-9222. You think Congressman Burkett is right? You think he's out to lunch? What say you? 800-848-9222. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. Side at midnight with Frank Morano. This is the greatest and best song in the world. Tribute. Long time ago, me and my brother Kyle here. We was hitchhiking down a long and lonesome road. All of a sudden, there shined a shiny demon in the middle of the road. And he said, Play the best song in the world. Or I'll eat your soul. Well, me and Kyle, we looked at each other. And we each said, okay. And we played the first thing that came to our heads. Just so happened to be the best song in the world. This is, of course, Tenacious D, a Grammy-winning comedic band. And uh, this is a great song they have called Tribute. Kyle, the one that Jack Black references in the lyrics here, Kyle uh, Gass, is celebrating his birthday today. He is 63 years old. So happy birthday to Kyle of Tenacious D. I'm not going to play this whole song, but it's it's very funny. I wish I could. But basically, the premise is, and, and um, I, I get a big kick out of this because... I often come up with brilliant ideas and then totally forget about them. The premise of the song is that he and these two bandmates perform the best song in the world. And then they basically, they didn't write down the music or I don't remember the exact circumstances, but they forget it. They forget the lyrics and they forget how to play it. They forget the music. So this is not the best song in the world. It is a tribute to the best song in the world. So they call the song Tribute for that reason. All right. Um, this is, you want to weigh in on anything we're discussing, you're welcome to. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. couple of interesting things. Hopefully you're having fun this weekend or doing something fun. I'm excited that baseball is back. The Mets, which th- 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 this is a team that looked like they were sort of learning how to play baseball again towards the end of the first part of the year. They are beginning the second half of the year by playing the Los Angeles Dodgers, who who is one of the best teams in baseball right now. They're in first place. So my friend Sean, who is part of one of the couples that we uh, 
rent a house with in uh, Cape May, New Jersey, which we're going to do in the first week in August. He is a Dodger fan. He's from California originally. He's a Dodger fan. And he said, uh, you know, my Dodgers are going to New York to play your Mets. It seems like some sort of wager might be involved. So I said, absolutely. I mean, he's talking to a guy that hasn't been to Atlantic City in maybe two months. And I am, you know, way overdue to make some sort of a bet. And so I said, absolutely. I said, do you want to go game by game or do you want to bet on the series? And he says, both. A nice Nassau. And I said, a Nassau? What's a Nassau? And apparently it's a golf term. Do people know about this? I don't know anything about this. You know, you, you're not a golfer, though, right? Are you a golfer, Kenneth? I feel like you would be a golfer. No? Um, I, am not a, I am not a golfer. You're not, and you're, you're not a golfer. No. no nor yeah. have I ever heard of that. Yeah. So I never heard of it either. But apparently it's modified from golf wagering. There's bets on each game and a bet for the series. Example, $2 per game and $2 for the series. So if there was a sweep, the winner would net $8. Two games to one, the winner would get $4. Makes sense. Got it. So I said, that's great. Never been a golfer. Sure, I'm in. So what I suggested, and again, the Dodgers are a much better team than the Mets, so I should have insisted on some sort of odds. But I'm just so, so excited to um, have the, the Mets learning how to play baseball again that I my overzealous nature got the better of me. I suggested, why don't we do, since we're going to be together in a few weeks anyway, why don't we, why don't we do this? I'll, we'll bet a cocktail on each game and at the winner's desired bar, cause there's so many great, and I think we may try and do an Atlantic City day when we're down there, but I haven't said my, told that to my wife yet, so we'll keep that between us. So there's so many great bars in and around Cape May. So I said, for each game that the Mets win, you buy me a cocktail at a bar of my choice and vice versa if the Dodgers win. And for the series, whoever takes the series, that person would get dinner, dinner bought by the loser. So I figured I probably would be up for buying a dinner at some point anyway. I may as well. What's it to me if uh, if the Mets lose? All right, uh, 800-848-9222. So I'm rooting for the Mets uh, very selfishly. That's my that's my selfish rooting interest over the weekend. And I'll tell you what, what's, uh, well, let me take a couple calls here. A lot of people eager to chat. 800-848-9222. Eddie is in White Plains. Hello, Eddie. Hey, Frank. I was wondering if you can help me remember. I, I listen to you any chance I, I can because I work nights and on the way home. Thank you. Uh, if I if I get out early enough, I, I always put you on. And, and you were playing a song, and I like most of the songs you do play. But it was by Marilyn Monroe, and it was like a controversial song, and had something to do with politics and the government. And I, there were some lyrics in it about like, what are you gonna do when it all burns down? And uh, you know, I went home to try and Google it. Like I do a lot of stuff I hear you talk about, but uh, I just I just couldn't find it. And, um, you know, I was wondering if you if you recalled what song I'm referring to. Again, it was a Marilyn Monroe song. It was about a month ago, maybe two months ago. Are you sure it was a Marilyn Monroe song? Um, I don't think it was, because the, the only Marilyn Monroe song I remember playing is I'm Through With Love. 
um, and that was a, a while ago. Uh, and I don't remember Marilyn Monroe singing a singing a song the kind that you're describing. Uh, any other details you may remember about that song, the lyrics or anything uh, else? It was, it was something to do with, 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 with the politicians and how they're always arguing and lying, and 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 and, and how ultimately it's going to end to 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 stifle destruction. Uh, at least that's the interpretation I got from, from, from the lyrics that we're playing at the moment. Um, but maybe, maybe I got, maybe I, I got it mixed up. Well, I don't think, I don't think it was Marilyn Monroe, but I want to help, you know, I want to try and figure out what song it is now, cause I'm curious. Matt Blaze, any ideas here? Because I have you, no idea. You have no idea. It definitely was not Marilyn Monroe. No, it was not that Marilyn Monroe. Cause, um, but um, I wonder, I wonder who else it, it could have been. Given, I'm trying to think of a song that fits with that description. All right, I, I'll say I am at a loss, Eddie. But there's a lot of very eagle-eared listeners in our audience, and I'm hoping somebody, what you're saying, rings a bell with somebody, and uh, they're welcome to call in and and hopefully shine shine a light on it for both of us, and uh, hopefully we can help you because that's the worst when you're trying to think of a song, what it is, and trying to find yeah. it again, and you can't can't think of it. It's uh, you, I. I obsess over that kind of thing. It's just the worst. So hopefully we can figure it out. Any other details you may remember, though? Um, no, that was it. No, okay, but, so but thank you. I, I appreciate it. All right, well, thank you, Eddie. Appreciate you listening. Uh, good luck at work today. I got it. Oh, really? What was the song? Dolly Parton, World on Fire. Oh, Dolly Parton. Well, that's a big difference between yeah. Dolly Parton and Marilyn yeah, Monroe. They're both busty blondes, I, I guess. If to uh, Eddie, they all look alike. Uh, do you have a couple of bars of that we could we could play? Let's hear a little bit of it. Um, meantime, we'll continue with your calls at 800-848-9222. Peter is in Southampton. Hello, Peter. Hey, Frank. What's on your mind, Peter? Uh, you know, uh, it was, um, you know, ace Frank anything, but I was uh, calling to ask you, uh, what was your favorite movie, and what did you think of about the, uh, the Sound of Freedom I didn't see The Sound of Freedom yet. I've heard great things about it. I do want to see it, so I didn't see it. And uh, and thanks for the call, Peter. You know, my favorite movie, it depends on the day. On most days, if you ask me, the answer is The Godfather. There are other days where the answer might be Citizen Kane. And there are other days where it might be 1776. And maybe one day a month, depending on my mood, it might be the first Star Wars film. But it's those are my top five. The Godfather, Citizen Kane, I guess top four. The Godfather, Citizen Kane, 1776, and um, and Star Wars. Although almost any Mel Brooks movie would give, in my internal rankings, a run for its money to any of those four. You have a little bit of that song? Oh, we don't have it. Okay. Uh, but uh, all right, we'll play it again in the future. We'll see. Hey, uh, in it, July 22nd, that's a week from Saturday, My, um, I have a conflict that I am working on figuring out how to handle. I'm going to share that with you. Also, speaking of movies, you may not be seeing any new ones for a while because one of the one of the um, most consequential strikes in history has just been voted on and is taking place now. We'll get into that and a whole lot more. Your phone calls, uh, so hopefully some fun subjects, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, your influence counts. Make sure you use it.
other side at midnight. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Sound of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Do you still read the actual newspaper? Because I do. I love it. I mean, these guys will tell you. When I come in here uh, after on Sunday nights, I, I come in with, depending on if I finish reading all the papers over the weekend or not, I come in with either a stack of clipped out articles or the physical newspapers themselves. I love it. When I walk out on my to my front porch, and I see those newspapers piled in front of our house. I, I get so excited. I get a jolt of adrenaline. And I generally try to abstain from electronics after Michael Smirconish's program on Saturday. So I, I don't check the news on my computer or my mobile phone. And I really enjoy, I mean, to the extent that I have any time that's not devoted to following around a 19-month-old, I really enjoy doing a deep dive into these newspapers and it's a, a lot of fun, and it's very interesting, and I feel like it's a different vibe than just reading the news online, because even though the news in the newspaper is a little less timely than the news you might be getting online, I find every time that I read a newspaper, even if I'm just skimming it, every time I end up reading an article or learning about a subject that I would not have known about, but for the fact that it was on the same page as another article. And I love that. I love that act of discovery that's in a, a plain old-fashioned paper newspaper that is not there with respect to online readership. And I know I'm fighting a losing battle. On my block, I'm one of the few people that still gets the newspaper. In fact, when I walk around with my son, my son has a vocabulary of less than 100 words probably. But when we walk around – and we see another household that has their newspaper or he's walking around with my wife and he'll see a, a, a newspaper with her. He'll point to the newspaper and he'll try and pick it up. And he says, daddy's because he's the uh, I'm the only person he knows that is still getting these physical newspapers. So every newspaper he thinks belongs to me, which unfortunately it does not. So anyway. It was a real bummer last week that we learned that two national newspapers that have had a great history of wonderful sports coverage are essentially putting an end to it. The Los Angeles Times has announced some major changes due to the sale of that newspaper's printing presses. By the way, but if you're interested in newspapers, there was a wonderful piece on CBS Sunday morning last Sunday about these uh, small town newspapers and one of the, some of the things that they're doing to survive because unfortunately every week every month every year 
more and more newspapers around the country are closing, creating what they call news deserts, local communities that have no news. And some local newspapers are banding together to uh, kind of stave off what may seem like the inevitable. So if you're interested in newspapers, I do recommend that piece on CBS Sunday morning. In fact, I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page. Go to Facebook.com slash MoranoFan, and when we go to break, I'll link to it. But there were major changes announced to the L.A. Times. They sold their printing press, and now the staff has to finish all the print sections earlier in the day, long before all the games are over. So the new sports section of the L.A. Times is going to look and feel, this is their aspiration anyway, more like a daily sports magazine. You're not going to be able to go there and read box scores or see who won the game last night. If you fell asleep and you didn't see who won, you're not going to be able to open the paper and check it out. And the New York Times is even worse. The New York Times, they pulled their box scores entirely last year. They announced on Monday that they are disbanding its sports department entirely. It's integrating into this this uh, digital sports website they purchased called The Athletic, which they acquired last year. But now a lot of folks are wondering, and I hadn't thought about this, a lot of folks that rely on the L.A. Times or the New York Times for their sports, if you're an observant Jew and you observe the Sabbath on Saturdays, a lot of folks are concerned that they're not going to be able to know who won all the games. So for some print newspaper subscribers like me, reading the Saturday box scores and recaps, it's a part of the Shabbat ritual. But the changes announced by papers like the L.A. Times, the New York Times, probably other papers as well, is leaving some observant fans in the dark about the results of Friday night's games. And uh, the newspaper, The Forward, is they chronicle the experience of Ari Cohen, who's a modern Orthodox, and he works in Jewish youth sports. And he's concerned about kids breaking Shabbat to get clued in. And he says, and I I can't say I disagree with him, with a phone at your fingertips, that's a thing that could absolutely, that he could absolutely imagine happening. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if you are a Sabbath observer and a sports fan, what this does to your sort of, I don't know, your whole routine of monitoring sports on Saturdays. Uh, 800-848-9222. You're welcome to call in about anything else we've covered as well. The other thing I did want to mention very, very significantly, SAG-AFTRA, the union representing Hollywood actors and performers, has voted to go on strike against major studios. Union President Fran Drescher said in a press conference that... um It was time for studio executives to wake up, to wake up and smell the coffee. So the jig is up, AMPTP. We stand tall. You have to wake up and smell the coffee. We are labor and we stand tall and we demand respect. 
and to be honored for our contribution. You share the wealth because you cannot exist without us. Thank you. So this is so interesting because this is the first time in about 60 years that both the Writers Guild is on strike, which was leading to all sorts of reality shows and things like that. And now that SAG-AFTRA is on strike. And it was a very, basically, I know there are more complicated issues, but basically this all boils down to the actors and the writers wanting to get paid for streaming. They don't get residuals when somebody watches a show 900 times on Netflix or on Hulu like they would if it aired on NBC or ABC or on cable. And I don't blame the actors or the writers for wanting to get paid. Now, I think I am technically a member of SAG-AFTRA, but I think I'm also about $2,500 behind on my dues. So I think they they may have kicked me out for failure to pay my dues. But I would like to be a member in good standing again. And I uh, I would let you know, though, lest anyone think I'm crossing a picket line, that um, there is... There is nothing, this has nothing to do with radio at all. Broadcast members who work under individual station or network contracts, the terms and the conditions of our employment are not affected by this strike at all. And we got the the note from our union that we should report to work as required by our employer. This only applies to motion picture actors, television actors, things of that nature. But why shouldn't they get paid? If the people that own these uh, these networks are going to be able to make tens of millions of dollars on the work of these actors and writers, why shouldn't they get a little taste on the back end? And you heard that group referenced by, by Fran Drescher, who, of course, played the nanny, AMPTP. That's the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. What it seems like their strategy with the writers was was to keep negotiating, keep negotiating, and keep the strike going as long as they could, which might seem counterintuitive, but they were hoping that all the members would be stricken with poverty and demand to go back to work. That was their strategy. Now now that the actors are going on strike, too, they're, the cause has a little bit more muscle. So I hope they win. I hope they get exactly what they're uh, what they're looking for, and I believe they deserve it. These are artists. And the chances of being able to make a living in motion pictures or television as a writer or an actor, to make a living just doing that, it is the equivalent of winning the lottery. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. It's not a one out of a billion chance, but it's a one out of a million chance. And so you want to take the people, the very few people in terms of the many multitudes of people that try to make a living doing this. You want to take all these folks and say, um, all right, we're going to squeeze a little bit more out of you and give you a little bit less. It's a race to the bottom. And we see this in almost every industry. And I'm glad that they're standing up for the workers. You don't think of Fran Drescher usually as a champion of the oppressed and the working class. But in this case, I think that's exactly the role that she's playing. Speaking of role, it was announced. I am a fan of the um, Willy Wonka Stories. I, I read the books as a child. I loved Gene Wilder in the motion picture. And I even thought Johnny Depp in that role of Willy Wonka was okay. It was announced 
that Timothy Chalamet, who's the, the cat's meow these days, is going to be playing a young Willy Wonka in this film called Wonka. And it's sort of a, a prequel. It looks really interesting. And it focuses on a young Willy Wonka and how he came to meet the Oompa Loompas on one of his earliest adventures. I think that's going to be really interesting. I think it's a really interesting bit of casting. And uh, Tim Chalamet, before he was this larger-than-life uh, superstar actor, he actually went to high school with my brother and sister. And um, they said he – well, I, I don't think my brother liked him, but I think my sister uh, liked him. She said he was nice. My brother Alex, I think, thought he was a little bit of uh, – well, I don't want to speak for him, but I, I didn't get the impression that, that he was – favorably impressed with Mr. Chalamet. All right. 800-848-9222. Let me know what's on your mind. Frank in Highlands, New Jersey. Hello, Frank. Yeah, good morning, Frank. Uh, Thank you for taking my call. I think one of the greatest movies is um, Oh Brother, uh, Where Art Thou? with George Clooney. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I, I think it's a very good movie. I don't, I don't think it's one of the greatest movies, but it's, uh, I think it's very good. I love the picture that, um, that where that line is from, the, uh, um, Sullivan's Travels, where, where they, 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 that's a line in the film, uh, that, uh, they were, keep saying, we're gonna make, oh brother, wherefore art thou? But I enjoyed that. I think, uh, John Goodman is great in that, and, um, and it's a really, a terrific film. And that song that they sang, uh, it, if you could find that, that would be cool. Yeah, we've played that on the air, uh, Man of Constant Sorrow. It's a great song. Yeah, yeah. So um, so I, I, if you ran for, I mean, <clears throat> if you yourself ran for president, would you be an independent? Well, I'd like to think so. Yeah, I mean, uh, I would, uh, I would try to run as an independent. I mean, I am, I am an independent. Absolutely, it's funny. What makes you? I'm not running, but what makes you ask that? Because, um, because you're open minded, you're brilliant, and you know, most brilliant people they got to be in the mood, and you, you can turn it on and off when you want. Well, you're very kind to say that. Thank you, Frank. I appreciate that. 800-848-9222. You know, it's funny that he mentions that because the Democrats are flipping out over the prospect of a third party. Uh, both Cornell West on the left, who's running as sort of a green, and No Labels is doing a big thing in New Hampshire on Monday. And Joe Manchin's going to be there, and John Huntsman's going to be there. And there's a lot of speculation that Manchin may be the no-labels candidate for president. He was asked by CNN about a possible third-party bid. The most important thing is how do we help democracy do what it's supposed to do? How do we help the process, the political process that we have, do what it's supposed to do? That's to have common-sense discussions to find out what the, the American people would like to see accomplished, not just basically the... Uh, toxic atmosphere we have because of political parties. That's all this is about. So you're not, are you ruling out a third party bid? Oh, I've never ruled out anything or ruled in anything. I'm I'm just, this is just strictly a conference that we're having. Common sense. So they're doing this common sense conference on Monday in New Hampshire. Huntsman's going to be there. Joe Manchin is going to be there. I'm actually going to be joined on Tuesday morning by, um, Joe Lieberman. And who's involved in this no labels movement? I'm going to ask him about this. One of the people that thinks that the idea of a no labels candidate would hurt the Democrats 
is Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace was on CNN, and he gave his take on a prospective third-party run. A third-party candidacy, and he's talking about doing it on the no-labels banner, potentially. Uh, You've got Cornell West talking about doing it in the Green Party. Uh, Remember, back in 2020, Joe Biden won some of these key swing states. I I think it was Georgia by 11,000 votes, Arizona by 10,000 votes. If you get Joe Manchin uh, on the ballot, if... If you get Cornell West on the ballot, and I think most people think that they would draw more votes from Biden than they would from Trump, then this is, you know, it's a three-person race, a four-person race. This absolutely hurts Joe Biden and increases the chances for Donald Trump if he's the Republican nominee. You know, I don't think Chris Wallace is necessarily right. I mean, you take the somebody like Joe Manchin. I think a lot of his appeal might be to never Trump Republicans. And a lot of people on the right are hoping that one of these no labels candidates comes to fruition so that they don't have to vote for Donald Trump. Yeah. And so I don't think that uh, I don't think it's as cut and dry as Chris Wallace makes it out to be. And the other thing. So you have some never Trump Republicans that want to see a unity ticket that they could support instead of Biden. And you have some on the right that are supportive of a third party ticket because they think it might help Trump or because it offers an alternative to Trump. But the the thing that I you have this group third way that is going all over the place trying to shut no labels down. James Carville, same thing, all these leading centrist Democrat and even left wing Democratic groups that are trying to shut you know this whole effort down. One of the things that they should really focus more on is ranked choice voting, because if all these states that they're concerned about being tipped from Biden to Trump were to implement ranked choice voting, then they wouldn't have to worry about that. So rather than try to shut down voter choice, how about a little more emphasis on ranked choice voting? And it also depends on who that third party candidate is, because I honestly don't see Manchin I can see a lot of people that would have voted for Trump voting for Manchin. And somebody like Robert F. Kennedy Jr., for instance, who has been talked about as an independent candidate, assuming he doesn't win the Democratic primary. I don't think there's much doubt that Kennedy is much more popular among Trump supporters than Biden supporters. So if Kennedy were to be the no labels candidate, for instance, I think Biden should be celebrating. Because I think a lot of people that might otherwise vote for Trump might vote for Bobby Kennedy in that instance. So who knows? It's all it's all premature. But I, I just I really get fed up with these efforts to shut down voter choice. But, yeah, on uh, Tuesday morning, Joe Lieberman will be here. Having been in New Hampshire, he's going to talk to us about what they're doing and uh, that whole thing. And Tuesday is shaping up to be very much an independent-minded day. I think I uh, we're actually going to be joined by Jesse Ventura, Jesse the Mind Ventura. Looking forward to that discussion very much. Joey is in Queens. Joey, what's on your mind? Yeah, hiya, Frank. Hi, great show tonight, as always. Interview with Bobby Kennedy was great. Uh, but Frank, let me tell you something. That's a mistake, though. You know, the story is, uh, we're on a national show here, but uh, for people that don't know, New York had a lot of police chases lately. That's right. You that's know, right. The, What's the your chases, take on that? But that's all wrong, Frank. That's all wrong. Those are not police chases. They're misleading you. That's people trying to get out of here. <laughs> 
The police chases, that, that, that's not police chases. That's cops and civilians and criminals, too. They're all trying to get the hell out of town there no more because this Adams guy is a great mayor. He said, oh, this guy is great, this Adams. Are you kidding? You know, Hollywood's on strike, but Adams... Adams is going to Hollywood. Did you know that? He's strike breaker. He's got a movie off it. Did you hear about it? I didn't hear about it, no. Super Mayor, TNT. <laughs> Wait, you, know who, you know who's producing it? Who's that? The Wayans Brothers. <laughs> so you mean... Adams got the contract. I don't know how he's going to do it while he's mayored, but he's acting mayor, so he's acting in Hollywood. I hope he does a better job in Hollywood than here. So you mean to tell me all these police chases that people are reporting, those are just people driving out of New York, the criminals people and the cops? People get the hell out of here while they still have a head. <laughs> are you kidding? This guy running away. My God. I would see that movie, Super Mayor. Super Mayor TNT. They're trying to, they're trying to get him a co-star. <laughs> Well, if if Superman I think is, they want a tranny co-star. They want a they want a guy who's mixed up. I, one of these. I think that's actually one of the Academy Awards criteria now is that you have to have a certain number of of non-binary or transgender folks in these films. So that wouldn't surprise me if Superman uh, did have that thing. So, needless to say, it doesn't sound like you'd be a vote for Mayor Adams for his second term. Yeah, second term in Sing Sing. That's where I put him. <laughs> Joey. I put him in Sing Sing for the, the guy. Hey, you know what? They, he's bitten the, All these refugees are coming in here. They're living all over. He's finding them housing. I'd like to send Adams to uh, to some place to be a refugee. Who's going to take him? Which city do you think San Antonio wants him? Who? Who wants him? Well, there's well, a lot of, before he was elected, there was a lot of speculation that he didn't even live in New York, that he actually lived in Jersey. He lives in his head. Anyway, that's it. The Hollywood strike. And don't be too Marxist because you're worrying about these actors. Why do they have to get paid? That's, that's true. That's an art. That's They're true. such great artists. Why do they need to get paid? You work for your art. That's true. If they're a starving artists, then they can afford to skip a few meals, I suppose. Absolutely right. And the other thing is this. the uh, Your son, you, you said your 19-month-old son has a vocabulary of 100 words? That's right. That's about 10 times more than any other radio host except for you. <laughs> He'll be a, he's a natural. Fox News probably will say, has they sent him a contract yet? Thank you, Joey. It is a, a treat to hear from you. Please we call love you, again. Frank. God bless you. Thank Bye. you. I'll see you at the premiere of that super mayor. That voice sounded familiar. 800-848-9222. Richard is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Richard. Hi, uh, Frank. About the... Um no uh, no labels voting. I think it's a lot of crap, and I'll tell you why I think so. Because all it is is let's go along to get a, That's what it means, go along to get along, and the conservatives get screwed. The voices with the, the people with the loudest voices win, and that's going to be the far left. It isn't going to change the, the radical far left. But Richard, just understand the, the prevailing narrative. You may be right, right? But um, the prevailing narrative is the people that are really upset about this are the Democrats, not the conservatives and Republicans, because the Democrats believe, and they've produced some polling to show this, that the Trump supporters are much more loyal to him than the Biden supporters are to him. Even the people that voted for Biden have some serious concerns about him. So if they put up a sort of semi-coherent centrist candidate, like a Larry Hogan, a John Huntsman, a Joe Manchin, uh, they're concerned that even if that candidate only gets one 
or 2% of the vote, that could be enough to tip certain states that Biden won to the Trump category. So a lot of the Republicans are cheering this on because they view this as sort of Trump's secret weapon. But you don't see it that way. I don't see it that way. It could go the opposite way as well. There's so many people, they say, oh, I don't like Trump. I don't like the way he talks. They'll vote this way. Like, I remember getting into a cab in the 90s. and The cab driver said, I'm set up. I'm voting for Ross Perot. You know, and you see what that brought us. Now, what what's needed is a no-labels press, a no-labels media. Well, the liberals... uh, yeah, Richard, I won't, I, I, I won't dispute you on the a need for uh, more objective press, but... One, on that Perot situation is, it's a popular misconception, honestly, because even when Perot dropped out, Bill Clinton was still leading throughout 1992. So I, I think uh, people have bought into this idea that Ross Perot, uh, cost Bill Clinton the, uh, cost George Bush the election when it's, it's not entirely true, but we can, we can put that aside and talk about that another day. There's a very good documentary about it. If you email it to me, if you email me, I'll, I'll email you the link to the video. It's very good. But what I was going to say is, Let's say you're right and the Democrats are wrong. The thing that I said in response to the Democrats is just as true of the Republican states. If the Republican-leaning states were to implement ranked choice voting, then they wouldn't have to worry about some candidates siphoning off votes from Trump and Biden winning that state. So would you be on board with that in mind with an implementation of ranked choice voting? No. There's a culture war going on. Look what happened in Alaska, an unpopular, uh, what's her name, Murkowski, she got reelected again. And she never gained, never got 50% any time she ran. So this ranked choice saved her. Well, it, so I don't know yeah. about ranked choice. Like, there's a culture war going on. You can't fight a culture war with go along to get along. And that's what any third-party candidate is all about. You get Larry Hogan, you get... Uh, Joe Lieberman, it's all go along to get along. The conservatives get screwed theoretically. Yeah, thank you, Richard. I I just wonder how accurate these labels are these days. Conservative, liberal, what, what does that even mean? You know, before Trump, conservatives were for things like endless war in the Middle East. They were for things like free trade. They were for things like um, George W. Bush style immigration reform. And it's just I see a lot of those labels being turned on their head. And I really do think a lot of these political movements are become cults of personality. You know, there was a time when conservatives were about limited government. George W. Bush presided over a dramatic expansion, not only of government spending, but of things like warrantless wiretapping. Um, certainly, if you look at even the two years that there was a Republican Congress and a Republican president in the Trump administration, there was no limiting of government. There was a substantial increase in the size of uh, of government spending. So I, I, don't, I think all, a lot of these things just become cults of personality. I don't like Trump and I am uh, going to be against Trump or I like Trump and I'm for whatever he's for. I just uh, I, I really wish people would not be blinded by the shiny object of Republican or, or Democrat. But uh, that might be that might be a pipe dream on my part. Richard is calling from the Lone Star State of Texas. Hello, Richard. Good morning. Um, on the uh, I have two tops, so I'm going to go real quick so sure. I don't waste time. So Scarlett Johansson actually uh, sued, I think it was Disney, because she did a lot of those superhero movies and she gets percentages. 
And uh, they settled it because they didn't want to have a big court case about getting uh, paid and from that percentage from streaming. So this is a big topic. I uh, support the uh, the members. Nobody, uh, People don't make the type of money Scarlett Johansson make. There's a lot of people who are just trying to make a living. And uh, getting them out of the streaming uh, right. world is, uh, is, you know, I'm for the little person, and I, I support them uh, wholeheartedly. On the newspapers... I think it's a horrible shame that these newspapers are going out of business because I truly believe in my heart of hearts and even in the small towns of uh, America that newspapers keep even local politicians in check. And unfortunately, on a national level, uh, we don't have that going on right now, even with the newspapers and the news media, because they're basically taking sides instead of remaining neutral with a lot of these politicians. So I... uh, you know, it's a shame what's happening to the papers all over the country. It's very sad. Actually. Yeah, and how, Richard, and how. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. All right, uh, we're going to try and give somebody $1,000. If you are the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222, then we'll give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can do that, if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, you will be $1,000 richer. Go ahead and be the seventh caller right now, 800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. See, this is a weekend song. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this program, uh, join our Facebook group. You can go to Facebook and just search Morano, M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. That's uh, M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. Or you can just go to Facebook.com slash group slash Radio Morano. In addition to being a place where you'll learn what kind of music we play on this show, that's also uh, meant to be sort of a, a forum, a clearinghouse for discussion about um, about anything that we cover on the program. So you're welcome to uh, contribute in a meaningful way, even if it's critical. The only thing that we ask is that it be topical. Keep it focused on subjects we've covered on the show. All right, without further ado, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. And let's say hello to Robert in Connecticut. Hello, Robert. Hello. Robert, have you heard this segment before? Yes. So you know what to do, right? Uh, yes. All right, are you ready to go? I love that enthusiasm, Robert. All right. All right. 
What is the opposite of big? Small. How many colors are in the rainbow? Seven. What entertainment union just voted to go on strike for the first time in 60 years? The actors. Who is the current director of the FBI? Uh, Chris Ray. Who was the first American to win a Nobel Prize? I have no idea. Take a guess. He was it was Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, uh, Obama. No, I'm sorry. No, it was close. Same job. Same job. The first American to win the Nobel Prize. It was Nobel Peace Prize. Was. Theodore Roosevelt in 1906 for his role in negotiating peace between the Russians and the Japanese. Uh, Robert, I'm going to put you on hold. Give Kenneth your information. We're going to give you a consolation prize. Sorry you didn't win. But, um, yeah, that was back in the day when America facilitated peaceful ends to disputes rather than um, agitated for war and made money selling weapons to one side or both. Those were what we affectionately refer to as the good old days. Hey, speaking of war, a lot of folks have uh, asked me about my opinions of different mob wars over the years. Well, that is one of the things that I discussed in the latest edition of The Racket Report. The Racket Report is an exclusive podcast that I do that you cannot hear on the radio. You can only hear it. If you subscribe to the podcast and my guest this week is author Jeffrey Sussman, and he's got a book out called Big Apple Gangsters. And we get into the history of gangsters in Las Vegas, in the world of boxing and in New York. And I asked him a little bit about the Appalachian meeting. This was a meeting that got a lot of attention right here in New York State back in the 1950s. And after that, and after the existence of that meeting became known, nothing was ever the same when it came to organized crime. Here was Jeffrey Sussman talking about the Appalachian meeting. Appalachian meeting in 1957. This is something that has been depicted from time to time in cinema, and it's often pointed to as a moment in American history when people around the country became more widely aware of the existence of La Cosa Nostra, even outside of New York. What was the purpose of this meeting and what happened there? Well, it, it, it was interesting because from people that uh, I had uh, interviewed, uh, organized crime strike, strike force detectives and, 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 and others over the years, uh, and, and even some uh, re- older retired mob guys, it, it, it turns out that the Appalachian Conference was actually set up by um, Costello, Lansky, uh, Gambino, and, and Luciano, who, who was in, in Italy at the time, as a way of getting rid of uh, Vito Genovese. And, and they were the ones who notified the police about this conference because they wanted to uh, embarrass Vito Genovese and get him out of the power position that he was in. And they felt that if they could embarrass him in front of all the other mafia bosses, that, that, that he, his, his career in the mob would be short-lived. And he had wanted the con- Genovese wanted the conference because he wanted to establish himself as the boss of bosses. Very interesting discussion. We cover a lot of ground. Uh, so if you're interested in this kind of thing, I want to encourage you to subscribe 
to the Racket Report podcast. You could find it on any podcast app, iTunes, anywhere else. Just search The Racket Report. Click the subscribe button. I also posted a link to it on my uh, Facebook page, facebook.com slash Fan. That's uh, facebook.com slash Fan. And uh, I think uh, it was a really interesting interview. And if you don't have a podcast app or you don't, you can't access my Facebook page, you can absolutely uh, just go to Red Apple Podcast Network. Dot com. That's redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Uh, so I definitely encourage you to try and check that out. By the way, speaking of uh, the Red Apple Podcast Network, one of the other things you could find on there is the the darker side of Midnight, which kind of builds itself as a weirder post-game show of this program that's uh, hosted by Kenneth, Matt Blaze, and Elias. How is, uh, how's that going? Are you doing an, an addition today? Yes, that is always the plan, every day. All right. Well, that's uh, certainly going to be uh, interesting today, I'm sure. So how's it working out with uh, Elias as the third member of your podcast triumvirate there? He adds a different element to the show now, and yeah, we like that. I can't tell if he's enjoying being here or not. Yeah, he is. Yeah. You don't you don't think so? Uh, he's never really smiling. <laughs> Look like he's having fun. He's getting used to the overnight hours. Yeah, that's that see the that's hour that's it. it. That is uh, that is a struggle. That's no joke. No joke. All right. Um in terms of what I was going to allude to before. July 22nd. My wife and I committed to go to a barbecue with another couple in our neighborhood. Now, it's a couple we see regularly, but not as often as we'd like to. So we made these plans about a month and a half ago. We all compared calendars, the four of us, my wife and me, the other folks and the other couple. And we came up with the next Saturday we'd all be available was July 22nd. I pushed for going to Atlantic City. That didn't go over well. It went over like a, a lead balloon. So they said, no, we'll have you over. We'll do a pool day. We'll barbecue. We'll cook. We'll, we'll have a fun day. Fine. So then last week, one of my oldest friends in the world, a buddy of mine since junior high school, who I know even before that, I know him since we're six, but I don't get to see him anymore because he's kind of a big shot now. And, uh, you know, we, uh, he lives in another place, lives in Rockland County, lives in a, a different world. And he's super busy. He's got a lot going on. I don't get to see him that often. He calls me last week and he says, I just want to let you know, I'm going to be having a barbecue. I'm going to send you a formal invitation, but would love for you guys to come. And I said, oh, great. We'll definitely come. When is it? He says, July 22nd. So. Now, I'm locked in to this barbecue that I already committed to. And I, once I give a commitment that I'm going to be somewhere, I try never to waver from that. But I really would like to go to this barbecue hosted by this fella that I have not seen in forever. So I, I talk about it with Rachel, and she says, no, we're already committed to the so-and-sos. And... I, you know, he's got a daughter that's a little older than Carmine. I would love for him to play with, uh, with his daughter. So what do you do in that case? You're locked into a plan you've already made, but you'd rather do something else. What do you do? What do you do? And I'll tell you what I did and how this works out. Matt Blaze, what do you do in that situation? 
If I'm going to the barbecue, yeah, it, it's very difficult for you to put yourself in this position because you're so antisocial. But true, yeah. But if I'm going, if I want to go to the barbecue in Rockland County, and that's where you want to go, right? Now the other barbecue, there's more than just you. There's a more. There's a bunch of couples. No, the 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 oh. other barbecue. And first of all, and that's the other thing. The it's just it's just the four of us. Oh. May, maybe one or two. Maybe one or two other people. I don't think so though. It's very convenient. It's only three or four blocks away. It's walking distance, which, right. is, which is great. Right. It's not an hour drive away. Right. But, but you want to go to the other one. I do. Because and, I and, haven't seen these people in a long time. And you said there's only, it's only you and Rachel and another couple? At the, at the barbecue in our neighborhood. So invite them to the Rockland County barbecue. See, that's why he makes the big bucks, folks. So that is precisely what I did. So I called my friend and I said, once I got this formal invitation, I said, here's my situation. And he knows the other people. Here's my situation. You know, I want to be at your thing. I've committed to being at so-and-so's thing. Let's call him Thomas. Not his name, but we'll call him Tom. Committed to being at Thomas's thing. And I said, now, I, it's tough to say, why don't you just invite Thomas, who wouldn't have otherwise been invited? But he, he picked up on my vibe. He says, ah, sure, great. I'll, I'll just invite him. I'm not going to tell him I heard from you. Um, I'm just going to invite him. So now that is the plan. Now. So now the wheels are in motion. And I'm talking to uh, another mutual friend of Thomas and me the other day. And we both look up to this other mutual friend of ours very much. And anything this guy does, Thomas wants to do. He's sort of a groupie. And I said, when I saw my friend, I said, look, I'm supposed to be at Thomas's house on July 22nd. I don't want to be at Thomas's house. I want to be at Jack's house. What if you told him you're going to Jack's house also? So I got the text message yesterday. He said, I think you're off the hook for Thomas's. I don't know that I want to make the trip all the way out to Rockland County, but I told Thomas that I am. So now I think you're out of that. So now this is... Incredible. You remember Jerry Seinfeld on that program that had his name Seinfeld? It, he, he tried to pull off the roommate switch and he couldn't do it. I may be the first man in history ever to pull off the unprecedented barbecue switch. I mean, it's wild. If we get this pulled off, this is going to be big, big. Oh, yes. Giddy up. Um, by the way, I was in touch with the real Kramer this week, Kenny Kramer. And I have invited him to come on the program, so we're trying to make it work. The Our hours are not conducive for him, but we'll see. We're going to see if we can maybe get him on early or maybe record something or get him on late in the show. We'll see. But uh, it was good to catch up with him. All right, 800-848-9222. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame shortly. You can find us on Twitter at Frank Morano. 15 seconds of fame. If you're new to the program, say whatever you like for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
Singing the other side of midnight. I'll tell you what I'm also working on. A friend of mine, another close friend of mine, Kyle. He's going to this birthday party on Sunday night for a friend of his, and a, a friend of his father's, really, and a guy probably in his mid to late sixties. And he in Manhattan, and he and his friend decided to play a little trick on the birthday boy. And they want someone who was uninvited to show up at this party and just start mingling and talking to everybody at the cocktail portion of it. And then as the cocktail portion winds down and everybody sits down for dinner and everyone's wondering, who's that guy? Does he know Milton? Is he an old friend of Milton? Who is that guy? As everybody's starting to sit down, he wants the person that's uninvited, that's masquerading as an invited guest to stand up and start making a toast. Now, Kyle knows that I have an eclectic group of acquaintances, so I've reached out to a couple of them, but I I don't have someone nailed down yet. If you are potentially interested in being this guy, this uninvited guest, now you got to play the part. you got to pull it off. If you're interested, email me, and uh, if we don't have somebody by this afternoon, maybe you can do it. 800-848-9222 for uh, 15 seconds of fame. But if you want to be part of that, email me at frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. I think it would be a lot of fun. And uh, ideally, it should be a male between the age of 58 and 70, I think. That's a good range. Frank.Morano at RedAppleAudioNetworks.com. I think it's going to be hysterical. I can't wait. I'm hoping they can videotape it. All right. Without further ado, it is time for The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Francesco. Good morning. Whatever happened to that guy, Russ? He's a communist. Go to Israel. You don't like Italians? You're a mama love. Russ. Frank, the mind Morano, can you please edit this moronic drone, Mike of Myrtle Beach, who calls with false names and a false voice so he can call you a Mama Luke? Eddie. Good reporters get their exercises by digging for facts. Flunkies just jump to conclusions. Roger. You know, a great person for you to interview, I think, would be Danny DeVito. Um, as a young man, being short of stature, he probably overcame a lot of obstacles. And look at him now. You know, it's a great idea, actually. Jesus Christ. James. Hi, how are you? Good, James. What's Hello? On? Oh, I want to tell Hello. you. I thought... Are you there? Hello. Hello, I've been on a casting couch at KDK Radio for 20 20- E. Frank. Hello. Yes, um, 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 Frank, I would just want to say at this rate, I think that Mayor Adams and uh, President Biden are at the, at the head of a locomotive uh, a track machine. Can we bring back James? Fred. Hey, Frank, my friend Waska the other day told me that he had the theme of Greece stuck in his head. I said, Waska, tell me more. <laughs> Raji. 
Mr. Katsmatidis, please bring back Lydia and John Hamburg and prevent the BBC from hiring hosts based on favoritism and nepotism. Rusty. Yeah, Frank. Stop brown nosing everybody on this show. Make it a little fun. Have some fun with Sid. He thinks he's Spock. David. Due to the actor strike, Hollywood will be re-releasing films such as Leonard Part Six, The Adventures of Pluto Nash, and Don't Be a Menace to Society While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood. Don't Be Thank a Menace you. to South Central. Joe. Rocco. Hello, Frank. I'm your man for the party. Absolutely. Can pull it off. Will pull it off. Sid and Friends is the best show on radio anywhere. Anywhere. I don't... Donna. Donna. All right. Well, Donna, Mr. Opportunity. That slams the lid on things for today. I hope you have a great weekend. God willing, I'll be back Monday morning. We've got some fun stuff planned for next week. Joe Lieberman's going to be here. Jesse Ventura's going to be here. Marion Williamson's going to be here. Uh, hopefully some fun alien stuff as well. We're going to be all over the place next week. Some fun stuff. Have a great weekend. Frank Morano. Good day. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.